This is Adam Lippi, writer, editor, publisher of RegrettableSincerity.com, and this is for my radio appearance from October of 2011 when I was promoting the Medium Rare Cinema screening of Comfort and Joy. And like all the other interviews I did on G-Town Radio with Ed Feldman, the morning feed show, uh, this jumps around a ton. From Comfort and Joy, Death Watch, Harry Dean Stan, Repo Man, Alex Cox, Dream Lover, another film we showed, Tarantino, Oliver Stone, Kevin Costner, Tom Hanks, Burt Lancaster, Richard Lester, Around the World in 80 Days, Richard Pryor, Robert Wise, Eastwood, Alan Alda, Sasha Baron Cohen, and all sorts of other things. Corrections that have to be made months later, since this was recorded a year ago. So there's a message from the computer at one point, and it's a segue to a discussion about Woody Allen. It's not really explained because we were on the air and we knew what we were talking about. Uh, it's just that he saw something on the computer screen that asked him to talk about Woody Allen. The lawyer I couldn't think of who Peter Gallagher plays in Conviction is Barry Sheck. Robert De Niro has four children, uh, as opposed to me not being sure whether he has any. And Diane Thorne, Ilsa, is not in the movie She from 1982 that I discuss very briefly at the end, near the end. So please enjoy. was our theme song for today <laughs> it's i like to call it the mr bunny hello folks song and it is from one of my favorite films that is also uh, being featured tonight at adam lippy's medium rare cinema at the video library at 7141 germantown avenue hosted by germantown chronicle and rotten tomatoes film critic Adam Lippi, who's in the studio, and this, of course, is Morning Feed on G-Town Radio at gtownradio.com. We are the sound from Germantown Community Radio to the world. Adam, I don't know if I've done this backstory, and if I have, everybody's forgotten it by now, so we'll do it again. How long have you been doing Medium Rare Cinema at the Video Library? Since February of this year. So it's a very recent thing, and, and has have the crowds been growing over time, or are they... Yes and no. I mean, it really depends on the movie. Last week we showed Death Watch, mm-hmm. which is a fantastic movie with uh, Romy Schneider and Harvey Keitel that uh, Bertrand Tavernier directed about a, a woman who is um, dying of a terminal illness, but it takes place in the future where they've eliminated terminal illness. So mm-hmm. Dean Stanton hires Harvey Keitel. Dean Stanton plays a sleazy TV producer, hires Harvey Keitel to follow her around and film her death only he has a camera put behind his eyes so she doesn't know you know that he's filming it anything appears on this show death watch mm-hmm. so it's a sort of satire parody of reality shows long before reality shows existed i think we need more films that put harvey Keitel and harry dean stanton in in scenes together yes <laughs> agreed <laughs> and harry dean stanton wears these uh, loafers minus socks that are just fantastic mm-hmm. and a big disco suit brown disco suit there are actors out there who know exactly what they are. And they know that even with careful underplaying, they're still what they are, which the reason they're in the movie to begin with is because they are what they are. Mm-hmm. And so they say, everybody out of the way, here comes me. 
and Harry Dean Stanton is one of those guys. It's not as if he's an over-the-top kind of an actor all the time. He carefully underplays. Look at, what, Paris, Texas. Right. A great performance in a fine movie. In the same year he made Repo Man, which is a totally different kind of movie, and he's fantastic in that. One of my favorite movies, just great performances up and down. And what do you think, Adam? Was Repo Man the first hipster movie the first a new wave well i mean hipster of your generation movie i don't know i mean i was six years old when it came the first punk movie the first we're going back to skinny ties movie smithereens by penelope spheris Spheris, yeah yeah no but penelope spheris movies are like conscious movies that Uh, ladies and gentlemen the fabulous stains you can make a yeah but that's about that's about music it it can't i don't think a movie can be a touchstone of contemporary society when it's about contemporary society. Okay. Right? I, I... Well, then Flashdance. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. That's the previous iteration. That's about the Pat Benatar generation, right. the tweens. Which, or... Even though it was only Why? made one year before Repo Man was. Yeah. I think Repo Man, before Tarantino, before... Tarantino will admit he owes a lot to Repo Man, even if he's going to claim maybe that everything. Kiss Me Deadly is is the is the source of the glowing suitcase in in Pulp right, Fiction. of course. Yeah, but Repo Man is the first one to return, saying the Baroque of the '80s is over. We're back to streamline. We're back to skinny ties. Look, there's a line from that through Mad Men. It absolutely is. There are eras in art and in society that attempt, well, from a commercial standpoint, to say, uh, the old shit is old and the new shit is new and you want the new shit, and guess what? I've got the new shit. Maybe the new shit is old, but it's older before the old shit that we are replacing now. It's like modernism of the 20th century swept away almost a millennium of representationalism. No, pictures do not have to be of a thing we can see, like kitties or trees or the Duke of Schmuckface. Let's do shapes and boxes. Now, what is that really? That's a return to non-figurative painting that had been gone in, uh, that, that existed in the Byzantine society before the representationalism of the West. But never mind that. Yeah, I tuned out while you were talking the Duke of Schmuckface. Thank you. Uh, and, and who knows how many others did. But what repo man did of course that whole you should pardon the expression ethos that we're still in swept away the baroque post hippie we still give a shit about something we can save this world rather than the nihilism that i think is probably makes more sense of saying look fuck it it's all coming crashing down let's forget about morals well but there's a self-awareness in repo man that Mm -hmm. May defeat that point. One of the funniest jokes in the movie is because Alex Cox could not get product placement, he has all these things in the supermarket that say food and drink right. on the cans. Yeah. And in a sense, it's a joke about his inability to conform properly. But it, there was an attempt to conform at the same time. And I know this was like you know semi-studio financed, even though I think Michael Nesmith put up the money, but Universal put it out. Ah, whiteout. We thank you. Cox even just made a sequel that came out a couple of years ago called Repo Chick. Really? Yeah, it's absolutely awful. I bet it is. I don't even know. I'm not quite sure what he thinks he's doing, but he's been trying to drum up interest for his previous films, like Straight to Hell, not so much Sid and Nancy, but his later stuff. And 
it, yeah, it's just mostly pretty embarrassing. What you know, it's 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 very sad and self conscious. Yeah, Repo Man's not only one of my favorite films; it's also one of those rare films where the uh, touchstone moment comes at the climax, which usually is counterintuitive to a weirdo like me. I usually find something in the middle that not, has not all a, the meaning. Or don't you know? Not in my face. And then she throws the chair from my face? Not no. That part? The end when uh, Emilio Estevez has uh, the choice to stay with the girl or go into space. Uh, and she says, don't you want to stay with me? And he just says, shit. <laughs> and he, of course, he goes into space instead. Well, we learned earlier that he's kind of a lousy lay, so he wouldn't have been with her all that long. Well, I, he, I, would, I would have left her. Uh, she was a little grating to me. I would not have left Terry Gar. Okay. Okay. I would have put the kids up for adoption, but I would have kept Terry. Do, do you think Spielberg and Close Encounters say says to the kids, "No, you you got to be a, a more rotten kid"? Why? Uh, because he's leaving you. You got to be like this family ha- must have nothing, no redeeming values. But of course, Terry Gar. Always. Oh, it they has have, redeeming. They're redeeming not even them. all that irritating in Close Encounters, and it's just no, no. The kids are. The kids are really a pain in the ass. But they're just kids. I mean, kids are can be irritating at that age. Compare and contrast them to the uh, ET kids, right? If you would have put Drew Barrymore, and this is before she started doing drugs, she started doing drugs during ET. I, you couldn't have had Drew Barrymore in Close Encounters because at the end, when he gets on the spaceship, he's, but he's leaving that little girl. Well, that's what Spielberg said all those years later, mm-hmm. that he could never make the movie the same way, Close Encounters, because he's now as a family. So he couldn't see himself leaving them to get on a spaceship. What a schmuck. I hate that f- schmuck. You're a schmuck. You listening? I know. I know you are. It's six o'clock where you are. Anyway, Adam, let's go to comfort and joy right now. Oh, I did want to mention something regarding Harry Dean Stanton. Now, I have, yes. a, I have a film book from my college days called Baked Potatoes, which is a, uh, the Pot Smoker's Guide to Film and Video, which is a, f- a very, very funny book. It might be out of print. Totally worth getting on Half.com for 50 cents if you can find it mm-hmm. or whatever it costs. You uh, can't buy pot for that much. True. And it was basically like the best movies to watch while you're stoned, and they rate them according to leaves and all these various categories. And they always have like little things where you can get the movie and whether it's better to be awake or tired or, you Mm -hmm. know, how it relates to your high and all this other stuff. The one category they had uh, at the bottom of each review, if it was relevant, if Harry Dean Stanton was in it, there was a big smiley face at the bottom. Mm -hmm. So wherever Harry Dean Stanton movies were throughout the book, it had a smiley face. And the other thing, look, Harry Dean Stanton who absolutely paid his dues coming up through all the shitty little TV shows and, you know, third outlaw, fourth outlaw, one line, Kelly's heroes, and just pulling himself up. And and he really could have, you know, cashed out and played Schneider in one day at a time if he wanted to, probably. Really? He was offered that? No, but he's, (laughs) that's basically what he was. You know, I don't know if he was actually offered it, but he's Schneider. I mean, there's no, there's no, you know, missing it. Mm Mm-hmm. And yet Harry Dean Stan, even after, and I guess, I mean, the big turning point in his career was his relationship with, uh, with Clint Eastwood, who put him in a, in a few movies. I mean, that really rose him above the other tide of the other level of, who's that guy I keep saying? Yet he still continued to pick these great indie pictures that I don't think... And Alien. And Alien. Yeah, uh, so like, you know, fourth crew member in huge movies. 
and then and then big parts in indie films. And, he, and he's part of the first cat scare in movie history, which is explain, a, please. A, well, you know what a cat scare is. No, I do not. Okay, a cat scare is in a horror movie that oh, right. instead of the monster, <laughs> it's a cat. Yeah, okay. And then right. and then the monster's gonna jump out like you know a minute later or something like that because yeah. now he's relaxed. He says, "Oh, it's just a cat." And an alien, there's a cat scare right before. Right. Animals, they're more sensitive than we are. It's like. <laughs> The Woody Allen line, I, I, I sh- knew sh- something was wrong about my uh, fiance when I, when I took her home and my parents liked her, but the cat died. <laughs> so, the so, Kathy, like the Kathy Ladman joke? I don't know it. Okay, Kathy Ladman was a comedian in the early 90s, and she had a joke about her mom always trying to lose weight, but instead of uh, actually losing weight, um, what she would do is, since she weighed herself with the cat and she would, you know subtract whatever the you know cat weighed she calls up kathy ladman and says oh i lost five pounds and the cat died (laughs) i don't know this woman's work but i'll seek it out on youtube maybe so where were we harry dean's and of course when harry dean stanton died in uh, big love uh, the whole thing went in the toilet why would you kill the best character on the show? I didn't Why? sense there was anything all that sensible about the show at all. I, I honestly, I found that show very dull and very. It, it's a show that could should have been on Showtime, mm. in the sense that a lot of the Showtime shows are very self satisfied, and very happy to think that they're outrageous, which in turn makes them not outrageous. I know you're a fan of Weeds, but that's always been my objection to it. No, I'm not a big fan of Weeds. But the Big C does it. Um, United States of Terror did it. I like Shameless does it. I don't know these mo- these shows. I only watched Weeds when I got Showtime for free, and I watched them all. And I said, oh, this is cute. Kevin Nealon makes me laugh sometimes. I wish, what's her name? Uh, Mary Louise Parker. I wish she would take off her bottoms as much as possible. And, uh, you know, it was nice to have a show about pot. But, you know, after like a season, a lot like smoking pot, the same thing happens over and over. Now, being high... Also, being fun, well, that's the difference. When a show, there's only so many things you can do about a pot dealer before the guns come out. And that's kind of depressing because I've known people in this business for almost a half a century and they've never seen a gun. So it's, but I understand you got to go there. You got to eventually go there. Uh, with uh, low riders and guns and Mexicans and stuff like that. You just have to because, well, watching a show about weed is a lot like a straight person watching stoned people. The stoned people are happy. The people watching them are just bored. So a show about weed is the same thing. You can't just make it about weed. you got to make it about something else. And the logical thing to make it about is guns and uh, that... Well, it's counterintuitive to me. And well, I, I think it's a show that would almost benefit from a laugh track because it so wants you to n- nudge, nudge, and notice when the jokes mm-hmm. are. It's so cute. That so uh, I think the moral of this is let's not have a, a, mo- a show about weed. Let's just have the writers smoke weed and write shows about other things, I think. Like Gondosaurus Rex. That one of those. Okay. Yeah. Um, again, Big Love, there were, it was really two shows. 
It was a boring show about a guy who happened to have three wives, but they were still living in suburbia and all that shit. Yeah, that's the stuff I found really boring. Right. It was boring. And then the other half of the show were these crazy-ass Mormons in the compound doing the wackiest things imaginable, and that was a good show. So uh, that was the show I wanted to watch. And while it never got to the six feet under point with me, where I would literally change the channel when Nate and Brenda would be interacting and wait for Keith and David to come back or Ruth. I was just counting the minutes till they went back to the compound. And when Terry Dean Stanton died, I said, I know Albie is crazy, but he's not Harry Dean Stanton because Adam, no one is. He's just Should Harry. Should they be grateful for that? Or? I had a similar moment when Bill Sanderson quit as sheriff on true blood uh which was i think two seasons ago and i think the the show has suffered for it as opposed to what i mean it's schlock and now it's what schlocky well it's schlock without a great actor who was in fucking blade runner for crying out loud come on now high grade schlock versus tv well something something you gotta have an old pro in there don't you yes you do don't you have to have an old pro like michael parks in from dust till dawn or something and everything that tarantino ever did yeah but uh, uh michael parks to paraphrase is no harry dean stanton is he's, no bill Sanders. he's great in from dust till dawn though and he is um he's got a leading role right now in kevin smith's movie red state playing basically fred phelps kevin smith did he ever get off that plane uh no he's stuck in there actually um that was the advantage that they he had to buy the second seat but he never actually moved into it so he was stuck in the seat adam hmm. There seems to be a trend in contemporary filmmakers, and by contemporary I mean, you know, your generation, that they make like three films and then retire. Maybe they make four films and then they you see their name involved with other people's films, but then they keep going on whoever's taken Johnny Carson's place, I forget who, and, and stuff like that. I'm talking about... Tarantino, what, four movies? What is it, five? Six or seven, but yeah. Uh, Kevin Smith, what? Well, Kevin Smith made basically the same movie about six or seven times. All right, but we're not talking Howard Hawks output here. Well, it, the, the, the system doesn't work like that anymore, though. So you Sure you can. You could put out a movie a year if your last movie was a hit. People are lining up at your door to throw money at you. Yeah, but the way that... Or you can do a movie every two years, not that, every six. The fact that there's not like a cranking out studio system anymore and that the, the studios don't put out more than, say, 15 or 20 movies a year at the most means that... Each movie is sort of an individual contract, unless they're someone's in a long-term contract, and then you get actors appearing in movies that they don't really want to be in because they've got to fulfill something. Or Adam, yeah, darling, when money rears its beautiful yet ugly head, you can say that's a wrap, and then go next door and start over. They will make sure you can do that if that's what you want to do. The deals can be in place. The lawyers will have inked. Yes. That's a theory, though. I mean, only very few filmmakers can can. It's at the basis of all capitalism, which is keep the machines running. Yeah, but Hollywood is is only theoretically run on capitalism. Oh, well. Because all these executives and studio heads, very few of them are necessary, but they have hundreds of them. And that doesn't support capitalism to have a whole bunch of overseers without... 
actual product. I mean, that's the problem is there's so much studio like hackery and inside work that that's what takes so long with a lot of these things. They hire a director and then they second guess him. And why'd you hire him in the first place? Yeah, but if your last movie is a monster, they second guess you a little less. I mean, especially if you, well... No, they're going to still second-guess you. You just have to listen less. See, Tarantino is like Reagan. When when Congress didn't do what Reagan said, he, like, went on television, and the next day Congress would get a billion phone calls and give him what he wanted. Tarantino does the same thing. You know, people can say, well, he's derivative, he's this and that, and then he, he does the talk shows, and everybody says, I'm going to see the, I'm going to see this movie. I don't care what... But he's so irritating. Name of on movie reviewer here said what? He's so irritating on talk shows. It's the it's the worst thing he could do for himself. Irritating is uh, is entertaining. No, he keeps it's... getting invited back. Oh, you're overriding the logic of the situation with your own personal. Uh, no, well, I, I don't think man, is anyone personally entertained by what he provides on a talk show. I mean, sort of a. Yeah. All right, I'm at a. I'm trying to avoid uh, libel here. Uh, Nobody's listening. Okay. Oh, no, except attorneys, actually. That's, okay. It's kind of ironic uh, in that sense. Over-caffeinated, we'll use the term. Yeah. That's not exactly Oh, you mean he's, he's full of drugs? He's full of dope? Is that, is that what it is? What, what, do you, what kind of dope do you think Tarantino does? Uh, I, we're going to say coffee? I think he's a Red Bull man. And something else, yeah. Does, don't your, your generation love the Red Bull? I, I've never tasted it he's myself. A, he's a little older than me, but yeah. I, okay. He he shows up and he's very manic and that can be funny, but he's a he can't calm down so he can't articulate something very well. So it's it's funny that when you listen to him talk, you're like, well, this might sound like a good idea, and then you know he's really just full of it most of the time. I, I, yeah, yeah. He's he's it's very difficult to take anything he says seriously because yes, he produces movies at such a slow level and that's all right. He's got to absorb all the culture to put in the next movie, so really fine. Movie makers are supposed to be full of it. Before Tarantino, there was but one filmmaker out there that had the bombast of the producers of the 40s and the 50s, the guys who used to say, this is a movie event. It is super colossal. The DeMilles of the era. Coppola, Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone. That's the guy. Coppola didn't do it. Coppola Coppola said that Apocalypse Now was the most important movie. Yeah, but he came out, I don't think he came out of a huckster tradition. He still came out of the auteur, scholarly tradition, you know? And, And of course... There, many of them are given to hyperbole. Uh, Scorsese, if you can tape his interviews and slow them down so you can understand them, he's given to hyperbole at, at times too. Well, there's a but man still, over- they're coming out of. But Oliver Stone was the guy in the '80s who uh, and early '90s um, who said, "This is an achievement. This is super colossal. This will rip the the covers off. Whatever the the cent- Central America, the Contras, JFK, uh, Martians, whatever." And now he's a Republican. Well, I, I think we touched on this before. The, the, the seminal moment in Oliver Stone's career is when he felt he was going to grab the next generation. He was going to grab the hipster mantle by um, the Woody Harrelson uh, killing. Catch of more killers? Yeah. And it came out within weeks of Pulp Fiction. And it had like this much buzz. And they said, oh, killers. And then Pulp Fiction buried it. It buried it and Oliver Stone watched those grosses go straight down he thought he was going to grab generation whatever 
I, I don't even know which one it is. And Tarantino just killed him. And Oliver Stone, frankly, sank from sight. Well, it's, ever a, ni- since. it's a nice theory if it were true. But what happened? I think it is. Well, natural. I'm going to repeat it a, until everybody believes it. Was a big studio release. Yeah. And came out a few weeks before Pulp Fiction. Right. And so it had its first couple of weeks, and then Pulp Fiction came out, and that was a, That's the very definition of a slow build. We may never get a slow builder like that ever again because the studio system doesn't work the same way. Where a movie opens in, say, six or seven hundred theaters, and then slowly builds over time and ends up making a hundred million dollars, but over a year is how it did that. And so you, it wasn't a big hit right out of the box. It made good money all right then critically i think uh uh, no they both got very good reviews i mean pulp fiction got better reviews but natural born killers is yes it's based on a uh tarantino script but only faintly it's really just Mm -hmm. a lot of oliver stone masturbation although there's a really great book about it written by one of the producers jane hampshire i think who now runs fire dog lake it is called killer instinct it's called Okay, I still maintain that that's what happened, if only in my mind. Uh, yeah, I think it's just in your mind. Well, then how can you say... It's, 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 it's one has of those Oliver things... Stone directed anything since Natural Born Killers? What, that's worth seeing? No, that anybody noticed? Sure. What? Uh, let's say? See? No, no, Nixon? Uh, Fair. Right, Although, well, I did a, an excellent parody on it on my show. So it must have been important. You we called it, it Nick's on Furniture. That's right. And I played Kissinger. Uh, I thought it was better than the film. And we moved the camera around and we did black and white. We did all that Oliver Stone bullshit. Well, I honestly don't <laughs> think Oliver Stone made a lot of truly important movies. So No, he made um, all bad movies except Salvador. Yeah, was all Salvador. Right. And then JFK as spectacle. Oh, kind brother. Of, it kind of works. But it, well, I'm not, it's not believable, but it's nice as a, as a whole bunch of theories strung together and it's very well edited. Okay. I'm not suggesting that it's a masterpiece. It's, I think it's it's muckraking, but it's entertaining. I I think watching JFK shows even the conspiracy theorists that Jim Garrison was full of shit. <laughs> I mean, it's a bad it's a bad advertisement for JFK assassination. It and of course the other thing that kills most movies for me two words Kevin Costner. Well, he, yes, he's the star of the movie, but there's another 65 other people who have good roles in that. Yeah, but you can't have a good Joe movie. Joe Pesci in The Wig, for instance. The only Kevin Costner... I can't watch any Kevin Costner movie. I just can't do it. It can't happen. Even can't. Revenge or Bull Durham? Well, if I can just... Well, the Susan Sarandon scenes, yeah. See, we got to just cut everything else out. I, I can understand. I don't like movies about sports unless they're about boxing. He's actually very, or slap shot. He's actually very good in the upside of anger, which is about halfway works as a movie. He's pretty good in that too. Right, fine. I like him in the first scene in the big sleep. Okay. You mean the big chill. Right. You're right. Oh. Adam, you are young and I am old and, and we can't get around that. Back to Bill Forsyth. Bill Forsyth was a is a Scottish uh, film director. Does he still live? Uh, in uh, in Scotland, uh, according he... to what I was listening to one of his audio commentaries today, he does. Yes, mm. he retired from filmmaking in 1999 after he had say four small low budget hits in the early, in the early to mid to late 80s. Gregory's Girl, um, local, local hero, hero, Comfort and Joy, which you're showing tonight right. at the Video Library, and housekeeping, and housekeeping which he made over here. Right. The earlier three and made in Scotland. Feeling, which is an interesting movie, although not a great one, and requires subtitles because mm-hmm. the accents are so thick. 
And I had thought of subtitling Comfort and Joy because sometimes... It's really? A, but yeah, not the whole thing. Certain points it's difficult to understand what mm. they're saying just because they, you know, they don't worry about... Appealing you know, enun- to well, Americans. I was going to say enunciating, but that's not really quite right. Well, of course, the lead, Bill Patterson, who I have seen in other things, uh, a lot of BBC productions, mm-hmm. uh, a fine actor. There's no trouble with his enunciation because no. he, of course, plays a radio host, which as opposed to G-Town Radio, requires proper diction. <laughs> right. And he has so many listeners. Let's yes. differentiate from G-Town Radio. He has so many listeners that hey! that people can... Uh, he can say something on the air, and the people who wouldn't necessarily listen to a show get the message because they're actually listening, because everyone listens in this small town. Just to my Scottish listeners, it is now 2 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. Hi, Scottish listener. <laughs> I've had them. Yes, I, I have. I didn't say you didn't. I just See, said listener. It's afternoon. Many of them are at work. Shout out to the Isle of Skye. Thank you. Um, now, uh, comfort and joy. Uh, let's let's back time it a little. Gregory's Girl, very nice coming of age movie. Uh, Local Hero is the is the movie that he made uh, that incredibly not only got him one up-and-coming American actor, Peter Riegert, late at that time of Animal House. And, and soon to become Pickle Man. And, right, Pickle Man with the Amy Irving across Crossing Delancey. Now, there's a, Crossing Delancey is my girlfriend's favorite movie, so I've seen it far too many times. She's a Jewish girl, is she? Yeah. It's a, <laughs> I find it a very irritating, mediocre movie, and certainly the director- Sylvia Miles, though, man, right? Isn't she in it? I, maybe. It's- Bubby, uh, who's Bubby? Oh, it's some actress I didn't know. Sylvia Miles may be the one who sets them up on dates, though. Yeah, she's she's the shotgun. Yeah. She's the matchmaker. Yeah. And I, of course, we know her and her ass from Midnight Cowboy. And from Farewell, <laughs> My Lovely, which we showed. But we don't see her ass in that. No, but she's very good drunk in it. Yeah. And if you go back into the 50s and early 60s, you see Sylvia Miles as a young starlet, occasionally blousy blonde that she was. And she was also a Warhol person. That's true. Joan Micklin Silver made... Crossing Delancey, and she made a much, much better movie called Head Over Heels in the late 70s, early 80s, which is also called Something I'm Forgetting, but with Mary Beth Hurt and John Hurd, and that's a much better evocation of actual realistic, you know, relationship Mm -hmm. movie. Adam, are you confused by the Hurt situation? There's John Hurt and uh, uh, who's the well? Guy? I wasn't not John Hurt. John Hurt is what John, I, I know. There's John Hurt, and there's John Hurt, and there's Mary Beth Hurt. I get confused. These people should put some suffixes on their names: Hurtstein or Hurtingham, Hurtyburg. Yeah, I, I. It's hard for me. It really is. Okay, so Peter Rieger well, was they should an, accept oh, some advertising and Hurty Fruity. Tutti fruity, so, fresh and fruity, whatever. Here, so here's uh, Bill Forsyth's uh, breakout movie, if you can call a movie that probably didn't make fifteen million dollars a breakout movie. No, but for what's the scale, it was a hit. How did he get Burt Lancaster in that movie? He asked. Really? Yeah, there was supposed to be. There's a subplot in Comfort and Joy about a, a double for you know so being a celebrity double and winning a prize, mm-hmm. and some actors come in and say, "Well, I look like Fred Astaire, and I look like." Bob Hope. But right. I actually look like Bob Hope, you know, 20 years ago. Well, I don't know if that counts. You know, well, look mm-hmm. at this picture. This looks just like Bob Hope. This was me 20 years ago. Originally, there was going to be a scene, I guess, where they'd actually have the contest because at one point, Bill Patterson says, you know, I have a doctor or a dentist or something that looks just like George C. Scott. 
And we that doesn't really quite pay off, though he does go to the dentist at one point. And apparently, originally, there was a scene where there was one of these double competitions, and he'd asked a, a number of different sort of known actors to appear in the movie, I guess, for that scene. But mm-hmm. they all... They all turned him down. They all turned him down, yeah. And so I think it would have been a funny scene that they show up. You know, it... it if Soderbergh can get as smug as he did on Ocean's 12 and have that whole subplot about you look like Julia Roberts because you're Julia Roberts, mm. I think I think Forsyth could have done it a lot better, say, 20 years earlier and, and not been nearly as smug and just made it like kind of warm and funny, which is what all his movies are like, without being insufferable. I try and watch uh, every other George Clooney movie because every other George Clooney movie is the good George Clooney well, I, movie. The like where is, he gave a shit and the didn't just say, I'm going okay. to take, take Brad Pitt to Italy. Right. Well, yeah, that's a total cash-in, you know, screw you if you're not famous movie, Ocean's 12. Well, you know what? They said, well, and this is probably... The it's not a secret at all. It, it it's probably as well known as anything. What Ocean's Eleven and what Ocean's Twelve is about is not about. Hey, we're going to do a movie that has a plot like a Frank Sinatra Dean Martin movie. Oh, it, it, but the remake is better than the original. It like is quite a bit. Well, it is. We are going to make a movie and have fun while making a shitty movie, just like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin did. They didn't copy the movie. They copied what was happening after the movie. But instead of singing in the lounges at Vegas, they probably just had sex with women at, uh, around Lake Como. And what's wrong with that? I don't. Uh, uh, nothing at all. I'd rather do that than sing in a lounge at Vegas. Although if I could do both, hey. Are we just making this case for Ocean's 12? Or Who Ocean- can I turn to when nobody needs me? Let's see. But uh, the, the remake of Ocean's Eleven, I don't think it's difficult to be better than the original, but it is considerably better than the original Ocean's Eleven. And then the money he made from that allowed Soderbergh to make Solaris, at least some his remake of Solaris. Which is well, that's two strikes then, isn't it? You, have you seen? It's very good. Solaris? Yeah, the remake he did. I try. I, want, I like the Russian one. Yeah, but this is like editing out that big scene on the highway that goes nowhere. It's, okay. it's a much more concise version of Solaris. Getting all the same ideas without a lot of masturbatory stuff. So they just had to ask Burt Lancaster, who was, well, a few years from his demise, I think. What, did no, he no, no, no. He didn't nine? die for, what, really? 15 years. He okay, was, fine. Well, certainly towards the in, end of the career. Yeah, he's in that Kirk Douglas one he did, like, Tough Guys, I guess. Yeah, Carvey. Tough Guys. It's a couple years later. He uh, wasn't like a, he was a name, but it wasn't like he. And remember, he's in Field of Dreams, you know, probably one of yeah, the yeah. But he, he was. You can't make a movie about baseball. It, you just can't. You can't. There's never, ever been a Major good, League Three. Come on. All right. <laughs> anyway, um, Burt Lancaster was a name, but he wasn't like as as famous as he was. But it was one of those things where, in order to get him, you'd have to be like a special guest mm-hmm. star. Or it wasn't it? Who was it? It was Eddie Murphy in Best Defense, where they called him a strategic guest star, mm-hmm. where they mm-hmm. hired him because the movie stunk, and then they needed to, you know, bring in a. Well, star. hey, what was what's been Eddie Murphy's best movie since? Let's see, Forever. It, it was the Goldfinger, uh, exactly, where he plays himself, right, and he doesn't mind showing himself to be an asshole, right, which is great. It's kind of like Tom Hanks in um, that thing you do. He plays a prick. Well, he does the and, same thing in Castaway, but... No, he doesn't. He just plays the dumbest man on earth. 
He figured out the tides. He figured out exactly how much rope he needed and how many sticks in five years. I'm going before that. He's, he's but, he ne- but he never said, hmm, maybe my girlfriend's banging somebody else by now. That thought in five years he never had. Right. Well, I'm sure he had it. But <laughs> no, he never had it. We don't. Have- he was so surprised when he got off the plane. And by the way, he would be the guy in history who was who was on a desert island for five years, who got off the plane and there were no cameras. Oh, he's that guy. He's that guy. Well, when POWs He's that come guy home, who, they who, don't always have cameras. I mean, it, it, that's because the government makes sure that they're not there. But this was Federal Express, a company, because it makes money, that would probably uh, like to have some publicity, right? Yeah, but it would be associated with a crash, and that's not exactly what they want. Mm, crashes are forgotten after five years. It's a story of hope and... and, and Perseverance. And, and, yeah, you bet, man. Whatever Our guys getting- never quit. And look, he's got a box for Box 7030. <laughs> well, what I was getting at is that in the first half of the movie, before he gets on the island, he yeah. is not a pleasant man. He's sort of an arrogant, waiting-to-be-humbled man that the island experience, you know, helps Yeah, but him. then he becomes Tom Hanks, a yes. humbled, a humbled... Look, even in The Road to Perdition, he's a hitman with a heart of gold. Now, come on, man. He's a good... He's inherently decent, yet in the only movie that I think he ever directed, that thing you do... He just did Larry Crown. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about that? Ah. He plays an affable guy who, because he works for a record company, is at his heart a prick. And he doesn't mind showing that. Well, a subplot they cut out of that movie is that he's actually gay and has a, there's like a scene with his lover. But it's, since it's a PG film, they cut out a lot of stuff. And it, really? was, it gave it a lot more interesting subtext considering it was about the 60s. You know, like a, a manager of a group who was out now wouldn't really make a lot of difference. But in the late 60s, it would have been. I'm glad they cut it out, not for any content reasons, just because I, a movie like that has to be short and bouncy because it doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, the d- director's yeah. cut, in, which you can find on DVD, is a good 160 minutes. Oh, no, see, that's wrong. Yes, it is. <laughs> There's some good stuff in there, but it's successful. There's only yeah. so many primary colors I can take, even, even today. Of course, is there any more of Liv Tyler? Uh, yeah, she was in Super last year, which is... No, no, I mean in uh, do, uh, that thing you do. No. Okay, I mean, I think she's it. in a couple more scenes, and Charlize Theron's in a couple more scenes sure. as well. But not, there's, no, there's no nudity, if that's what you're asking. Uh, short skirts are good enough for me. And so, they just had to ask Burt Lancaster to be in Local Hero. Now, well, Local Hero... Well, I mean, it's like one of those like small parts that seems big. Mm-hmm. He's not in every scene. He's wonderful. He's hilarious. It may be his greatest comic role, certainly. Yeah, probably. Of course, I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but of course, Burt Lancaster, well known as one of the great control freaks of Hollywood. Well, maybe so, that's why he, he got squeezed out of being a big star, and then that's why he was sort of available for the stuff. Like, now he didn't no, necessarily... No, he got squeezed out of being a big star because he was old. The same reason all other well, big I mean, stars of the golden era, era stopped being big some stars. some conspiracy like with Cliff Robertson or something, yeah. but that he became too big a star where they didn't want to pay him for mm-hmm. what wouldn't be a, a, a vehicle, but he was too proud to be on the Love Boat or Mercy Road or whatever equivalent there was of like... He had his money. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, from ben, uh, Hecht Lancaster Hecht, he had, he had his money from then. I mean, he had a production company and uh, for years, and they made a ton of movies. Well, 
probably about two dozen movies. Half of them, more than half of them made money. Mm-hmm. Some made a lot of money. The best one didn't make any money. Sweet Smell of Success. But of course, we know now a classic. And then, so one of the things I'm a sucker for is an intrinsic part of both local hero and uh, a comfort and joy. And that is, you should pardon these expressions. I really, if I had time, I'd be able to make up another kind of descriptive phrase. It has a sense of place. It's centered, uh, local hero centered in this little uh, northern Scotland seaside town, comfort and joy in Glasgow, and not except for a few scenes in downtown Glasgow and kind of the middle class and in the, the lower, mm-hmm. yeah, in the lower middle class. And of course, I hope we all know by now, listening to Ed Feldman, who's taught the uh, history of the decorative arts and, uh, and stuff like that, that European cities, they're um, uh, never, uh, the, the center of these cities never got run down and then had to be regentrified. They all stayed gentrified. And actually the housing projects and the lower classes were always moved out to the suburbs, the exact opposite of American cities. And so we see the housing projects in these kind of bucolic settings on the hills of the outer reaches of Glasgow, completely different than our urban housing projects. It's just so different. Adam, the combination of a sense of place and my enjoyment of seeing that, of the, of the action taking in a place that is defined, even if it might be a full city, And the fact that that full city or town is a place that I don't know, I'm already hooked. Well, you should know for a specific reason, because the movie is so obviously Alice in Wonderland, because... Comfort and joy we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. What happens at the half hour point? He follows an ice cream truck, Mr. Bunny. Mr. Bunny, yeah. Uh, under a bridge and then into a new world where then his life completely changes and he learns all sorts of new things. So it's absolutely Alice in Wonderland. So that sort of new Wizard of Oz type place should be in a sense familiar. Now it's not full of like everyone in this town is kooky, which is it's great that it's not because that is such an old cliche. But many are. Well, there are some, but there but not everyone has their little quirk. It's not waking Ned Devine or something. Mm-hmm. You're right. Oh, well, Ned Devine was like uh, specifically British quirky. Yeah, it's yeah. irritating. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Plus, Bill Patterson has the distinction of looking exactly like Jerry Orbach, and that's always reassuring for us people. No, I don't think he does. He's much too short, number one. I just mean facially. Okay, well, an everyman kind of a character. The, the, the way the cheekbones, it's it's pretty close. You know what? I watched for... A few minutes, which is all I can stand, a cop show, uh, a television, a network cop show, one of the ones with initials in its name. I'm not sure. And I call this uh, the club lighting cop show, you know, where they're in the police station and it has club lighting, Mm -hmm. which for anyone who's ever been in a police station (laughs) where you can pretty much do open heart surgery from the 9000 watts of fluorescent lights shining on you. Club lighting in a police station with like designed by Michael Graves by way of Ikea is not your average cop station. Well, we got to see CSI is produced by Jerry Bruckheimer, who does all the Michael Bay stuff, mm-hmm. which would suggest, you know, something like bad an Boys. alternate reality. Well, not an alternate reality, but everything is going to look like a club. I mean, what does bad boys and bad boys Two look like? That's what they look like CSI. So it's only fair that the uh, forensics team would be working, you know, under club lighting or whatever. Well, uh, look, I watched what about a 30 seconds of the trailer from bad boys. And I just said, no, they don't put two black cops together. They just don't do it. 
they put two white cops together and they put a black cop and a white cop together. They don't put two black cops together. They just unless they really have. Is this to. this theory like where? No, in yeah, police, black, and, black black parents never adopt white children. Is that no? The police like to mix up their teams, so it's just like good cop, bad cop. It's it's a strategic thing. It's not a the, the it's not thing, a social engineering thing. The racial it, thing was simply casting. The movie was originally written for Dana Carvey and John Lovitz. Really? Yeah. They don't put two short cops together either. <laughs> and I guess they did Trapped in Paradise instead, which is one of the worst movies ever made. I don't know. So Nick Cage and Madchen Amick, who's in the, the movie that we're showing tomorrow night. We're... Tomorrow night. Well, let's finish with Comfort and Joy first, Adam. Um, there's uh, Glasgow and not being a, a Scotsman myself or even a, a, a British Empire citizen. I don't see a whole lot of movies that take place in Glasgow. And that's one of the great things about Comfort and the Joy. The movie we showed last week t- takes place and was shot in Glasgow, Death Watch. Oh. Even that, which was an you know international co-production. Mm-hmm. Um, the one with uh, Romy Schneider that I was talking about earlier. Okay. Do you know De Laurentiis involved in it anyway? Whenever I, I hear international I uh, production, I always think of Dino De Laurentiis. Well, that, that always creates rights issues where one of the reasons I might show something is because there's rights are so complicated that it's never coming out because too many people own in too many different territories and nobody wants to untangle all that stuff. Anyway, let's go back. Uh, Comfort and joy. The Godfather with ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Comfort and joy. uh, Going back to the Alice in Wonderland, you have people speaking different languages in that um, one of the rival, don't want to give much of it away, uh, ice cream companies are run by... Italians. uh, Italians, right, with uh, some with heavy accents, and others uh, have Scottish accents. And, of course, even to an internationalist uh, like myself, it's sometimes jarred, and and it takes me a, a second, although less all the time, when I see a country, a foreign country... And that country has immigrants from other countries, the same kind of immigrants that came over here. There's two examples in the movie. And I goes, love it. And he I goes to it. a Chinese food place. Mm-hmm. And that's actually like an important subplot. I'm not yeah, going to tell you what they refers to. but Chinese people, I understand. They're everywhere. <laughs> in Panama. Glasgow in the early 80s. Right. But, but Italian immigrants to Glasgow, Scotland was like... Wait a minute! Don't they belong here? It's like when I was in uh, I was in Canada, like a year after nine eleven, and I was dr- walking down the street, and in uh, a store window there was a sign that says "God bless Canada," and for a second I I actually said, "Wait a minute! Isn't that God bless America?" And then I realized what an idiot and awful person I was for thinking that. Even I'm glad it occurred to you eventually. <laughs> so uh, the fact that uh, there are Italian immigrants selling ice cream. In, in Glasgow was not mostly surprising, but delightful to me. Yes. But father, I want the Kunzel cake too. Bruno, no. The yes. fact that his son spoke with a, a Scottish accent and the father spoke with an Italian accent, it's something that uh, sealed in the amber that the American film tradition and its constant going back to the American culture keeps us frozen in uh, it's it's delightful what can i tell you adam well i agree the movie is it's it's 
it's warm and funny and without yeah i think i said it before it's not smarmy it's not no not at all it's not like sticky and maudlin or any of these things it's smart sophisticated in its own way and you don't feel like a dummy watching it even though you know technically it's a film you can bring the kids there's no nothing offensive in the movie no not at all it's i think it's a great movie for kids really it's rated pg and and the faintest pg you can imagine i mean there's there's somebody beats up a car that's as far as it goes There's a couple of profanities but like very very minor but But it's it's in heavy scottish so maybe it it just slips right on by (laughs) i do believe it received a pg which is about right so yeah uh not only does it have a sense of place which i love it has also got a sense of time it takes place in the winter months and around christmas and it's and here is a movie that's really uplifting and and funny but it's never sunny and i don't mean that as a metaphor you literally never see the sun right it's always kind of dark and gray and there's absolutely brilliant which is a british way of saying cool brilliant shots well the photography by chris menges is just fantastic of, of the surrounding countryside of the downtown city of of glasgow every every wide shot is is wonderful agreed did you see the red riding hood uh diaries red riding hood it was a bbc thing that's about murders in north in in northern england i saw one or two of those yes red riding i saw the 1981 mm-hmm and then part of the 83 one. Those are very good. I'm... So uh, uh, that also has that kind of doer northern England. It's not Scotland. It's the north. And, of course, as everybody knows from watching, well, if nothing else, Hard Day's Night, the north in England is like the south in America. It's the rural area. It's the non urbanized area it's the part that the south london like the north in the united states looks down upon and they're kind of uh, clannish and uh, when the police beat some uh, journalist up and throw him out the back of the van they say you're in the north which sounds exactly like you know some kind of redneck saying yo in the south now is that whole it's that whole seinfeld bit about rooting for clothing you know only care about what <laughs> right. clothing someone's wearing according to the sports team and that's the mm-hmm. only thing that's important or where you're from is somehow makes you a better person or right. I don't know, when it has no relevance whatsoever and of course in hard days night when uh, somebody's being toffee nosed to ringo he says southerner and of course, regions have that. Italy's that like might have that. been a bit of Richard Lester irony, because that's what he. He's from Germantown, you know. Richard Lester. Yeah, he was born in Germantown, P- PA. Would right he do here. an interview about Superman three? Because I got to know. <laughs> I don't know where he probably lives in England. He probably Terry Gilliamed in that shit, man. Right? He well, said, he retired. I'm not an American in, anymore. In the early nineties, after he did a Paul McCartney concert called "Get Back." Because he'd had all the trouble on the final Three Musketeers movie where Roy Kinnear died falling off. Yeah, the horse. right. And then, the, I mean, they finished that movie, but, you know, obviously the energy flagged after that. And then, right. Algernon. Yeah, he basically, he basically got retired by not necessarily that incident, but just that took a lot out of him. I mean, a similar, not as being humbled more so than even John Landis when he killed those kids in Twilight Zone. That's worse. Yeah, because he was, wasn't really all that humbled. A horse is not a helicopter. Right. <laughs> and that was really his fault in the fact that he got away with it. And the kids and Roy Kinnear already had a nice career, you know. So did Vic Morrow, technically, but yeah. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's father. That's right. And a Jew. Did you know that? A Jew in Hollywood, I would never guess. Hey, but Vic Morrow never thought, you know. (laughs) I just found that out. 
a couple of years ago. I always like to throw those in. Good for you. (laughs) G-Town Radio is having a fun drive. Go to gtownradio.com slash donate. If you call in 215-609-4301 and ask Ed Feldman or maybe Adam Lippy to do a wacky stunt on the radio for a pledge of $10 or more, we'll do so at 215-609-4301. But... Are we including, like, me going to see Kung Fu Panda sequels as a wacky stunt? It's the radio, uh, Adam. You can say you're doing the wacky stunt and then not really do it. See, that's the, that's the beauty of theater of the mind. Just grunt or something or cry or pretend to throw up, and they'll believe you have done the, the uh, you have achieved your goal. GTownRadio.com slash donate. Is that how you have kids, too? Isn't that the same thing? What? Isn't that how you have kids as well? You're dared to it? Yeah. Well, no, not dared to it. You just make a noise and you grunt and that's it. Well, it, for me, it would more like, hey, let's, let's try this and see what happens. Oh, no, we did it. And now she's going to get married. So go figure. Adam, when did you first see Comfort and Joy? Somewhere in the late 90s on VHS. So you were a grown person. No, not quite. Well, maybe it was the mid-90s. I would have been about uh, college age. Did you like it right away? Yeah, I did. Okay. I saw all Had of, you seen Local Hero before? I did, actually. And I saw Gregory's Girl years later, but mm-hmm. liked that a lot, too. And that sinking feeling I saw a long time ago, and I don't remember much of it. So what about it. Housekeeping, which is his first American film and the first film I after Comfort and Joy? I saw that VHS on an interlibrary loan when we lived in Columbus, Ohio, about four years ago. Great college town. Right. And now it's on DVD. Uh, you can get it like on demand, I guess, through made on demand. They'll just make a disc for you through Sony's site or through Amazon. I guess you can get it. It didn't. It was never available before. So it's a nice treat. It, it came out in 87. So I saw it then 87, 88. I took my daughter to see it, who was no more than seven or eight at the time. And to call this movie almost made in the subconscious a very low-key, I won't say quirky, even though I just did, um, a kind of really close, I can't put it any other way, close to the subconscious a movie, not a showy movie in any way. It was the first film, and having enjoyed Comfort and Joy and uh, Local Hero, I wasn't prepared for the more... What's mature, and it, it, it deals with the irresponsib- irresponsibility... Uh, caused by mental illness. Yeah, there are no fascinating. There are no well, no high speed car chases in either of the other uh, Bill Forsyth movies. But still, I was not prepared for the key, the minor key, if I can put it in music terms, of housekeeping. And at the end of the movie, and of course, we don't talk during movies in my family, unless, of course, <laughs> they really suck. And when we left the theater. I was really, I, I was un, I, I, I was, I was unaware. I was unprepared for what my daughter would think about it. I, I th- would thought think at her age, she wouldn't. I don't know, get it or enjoy it. I mean, after having sat through the Secret of Nim with her three hundred times, she loved that movie, and that's when I knew my daughter was growing up right, because at eight eight years old. My daughter loved that. That's when I knew she's going to be all right. <laughs> that's the defining. That's, that's yes. how you figure out whether your child's okay, taking them to the Forsyth movies. No, no, uh, taking, uh, uh, no, uh, quite specific. I, I know. Quite I specific. 
No, seriously. I just like to watch you get flustered. Ah, shut up. <laughs> and, uh, and I just bide my time. Waiting turned out time. she is. Too many toys on the shelves, but other than that, she's a great person. And so, um, but after that, he faded from sight. Well, he sight. went to Hollywood, made a Burt Reynolds film that was written by John Sayles called yeah. Breaking In, which is fairly mediocre. Everyone's yeah. doing it for the money. Sales wrote that so he could finance City of Hope, which we showed weeks a couple of weeks ago, and that's just a great it's a movie. Great movie. Uh, that's not on DVD, and it's a big shame. So he made a Breaking In, uh, which wasn't a hit, but you know, right. it got fairly good reviews. And then he was hired to make uh, Being Human. Is that what we with said? Robin was, Williams? Yeah, with yeah. Robin Williams, and that was a very, very troubled production. And uh, Warner Brothers forced him to cut forty, forty-five minutes out of the movie. And add a, a really unnecessary voiceover, and the movie's already kind of like irritatingly whimsical. Mm. And the result—it's got Robin, Robin Williams in it. Yeah, Robin Williams and, and John Turturro, and Robin Williams in five different time periods, and it's just so. Does he do? I, I've never seen the movie. It's so irritating. Does he do any Robin Williams stuff? I can't remember. It's been a while. See, but, I don't know. Do but they? It is. It is. Obno- it is an obnoxious movie. It's there are not, two it's kinds on of... the level of Patch Adams obnoxious. Okay. See, there are two kinds of Robin Williams uh, performances. That's one kind is Robin Williams being an actor, and the other kind where bits of Robin Williams sneak in. Fisher King is a good example of where he should be being an actor and it slips in. Yes. Yet, in other movies, and I will, I will talk about this movie briefly because it has two, for me, uh, unique qualities. Moscow on the Hudson where I think Robin Williams turns in a brilliant performance. Even though you would think, all right, he's doing a Russian accent and anything with an accent is already him being a little Robin Williamsy, but I don't care. He's totally inhabiting that character, in my opinion. There is an, an, an iota of Robin Williams that creeps in. I think he should have been nominated for an Academy Award for I think that. he was. Okay, was then they got that one right. Not like The Greatest Show on Earth, 1950. Best picture. Are you kidding me? Betty Hutton? And the other uh, thing... Around the World in 80 Days, you know one best picture, so let's not... Yeah, that's because put, Mike Todd put, put, died. Put, it's because Mike Todd put every cent he owned into a movie. He put every Hollywood star in it, and then he died. That's why it won, of course. It was in the late 50s and early 60s, every movie that Hollywood thinks was the movie that saved Hollywood for another year would get an Academy Award. You know, because they knew the writing was on the wall. Every old Jew that owned every studio all was like, uh, you know, uh, drooling into his chicken soup at the commissary. They knew they were, they were speeding towards a wall. They didn't know how to avert it. So every so often a movie that uh, saved Hollywood would come out and they gave it everything. The, there is no difference in the reason people voted for Around the World in 80 Days, then they voted for Rocky almost 20 years later. Or Elizabeth oh, Taylor and Butterfield 8 and the same thing. Well, no, she got it because Mike Todd died too. Well, she was supposedly dying in Butterf- while Butterfield... She was always dying. Yeah, but everyone thought she was going to die. It's a terrible yeah. movie, and, and oh, if just you watch the... it, it's embarrassing. But, right. you know, she won... And she knew it. She yeah. said, horrible movie. She And, yeah, she... Certainly the most beautiful woman, perhaps, ever in films, maybe. Um, but, well, hey, uh, like other 
people who got cast back then every so often, you know, uh, a, a broken clock is right two times a day. Unless it's a digital clock and the light goes out, then it's never right ever. What's up with that? Even Natalie Wood is perfect in Rebel Without a Cause because she plays a brainless 16-year-old, which, of course, well, she was. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, uh, you lost your train of thought. Now the dog stopped barking. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. <laughs> Thank you, dog. Now he's barking. Uh, you brought me. up uh, Around the World in 80 Days. Yes. Moscow on the Hudson. Aha. Robin Williams. I think his greatest performance. He's good in some other stuff, like The Night Listener, which nobody saw. One Hour Photo, he's pretty good in that, too. Yeah, the um, Insomnia with yes, Pacino. Insomnia. That's, that's a remake that's better than the original. Although, I can't stop watching the Robin Williams performance and thinking two things. One, he's really good. And two, this is Kevin Spacey's role. I mean, this is Kevin's... They couldn't get Kevin Spacey. Or they were hoping Robin Williams would turn it down so they could get Kevin Spacey. It is a Kevin Spacey role. It uh, is. Yes. It just is. But it's good that he turned it down because it would have been too obvious. I don't know casting. that he did. Right. A great, a, a swell movie. And even what's her name? The girl with Hillary the body Swing. of death and no face. Right. Yeah. Even she's good. Because you can imagine somebody who looks like that being a, um, a cop in Alaska. Right. Because Hollywood is filled with perfect-looking people, especially perfect-looking people having jobs that those people would never take. <laughs> they would, well, they'd be doing jobs that would try and get them into Hollywood, like car hop or call girl or, uh, you know. Waiter. Yeah, something like that. They would never have this job. But Hillary, you could imagine absolutely Hillary Swank having that job. And Al Pacino is being real Pacino-y, which it's, is okay not, for it's me. It's not so over the top. The whole no. point is that he's sort of sleepy throughout the movie. And yeah. So it's okay that the performance is at that level. It's actually exactly right. And to come around to the beginning, Adam, Harry Dean Stanton could have done that. That's true. On his ass. And on his ear, standing on his head. That's a for-hire movie for Chris Nolan, which is rare. Uh, Chris, Christopher Nolan, who made the Batman movies, directed, and Inception made... Uh, the remake oh. of Insomnia. And, and again, again, I go back to this. I'm so bored by movies where I see the same stretch of highway, the same kind of thing, the same settings. Insomnia, I've never seen any of those shots, anything close to that, especially since I never saw that Anthony Hopkins and Adam Bald uh, Alec Baldwin movie. So I've never seen those scenes where they get the, a bear attacks them. Um, so I've never seen those scenes before. And those are the kinds of movies that I love. Places that I've never been. Things that I've never seen. Fargo is a great example. And Fargo, for all the wasteland, I think the most refreshing scene is when they go to the all-you-can-eat restaurant. Because up until that time, I don't think I could ever remember, I ever remembered even movies that purport to be about working class people, having them sit in an all-you-can-eat restaurant in those goddamn captain chairs that all of them have. That all of them have. The best scene in the movie is a totally unnecessary scene, too. What? The scene where uh, the the Asian guy comes to meet yeah. her best scene in the movie, but yeah. you could Hollywood, you know, if that was a major studio film, which it wasn't, it was financed independently. 
if a major studio would have made them cut that scene because it doesn't have anything to do with the story. But it's so helpful for, for to understand the character of Marge Gunderson. It's a scene where an old high school friend, you know, basically comes on to her desperately, and it's 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 so sort of heartbreaking to watch that scene. Yeah, it really. And and then he call and and the calls and he calls her right in the middle of the night or late. I think the guy was on night. Mad TV too. Really? Like, yeah, Steve Kim. Okay. Yeah, well, um, uh, the Cohen brothers still know that life happens, and uh, it's just a, a random string of events. Even though a lot of their movies are heavily, heavily plot driven, but they all they always throw something in, like, "No, I didn't order any pizza," and they hang up. And people say, "Well, why did that happen?" Well, because things like that happen. Right. They just do. Well, in Comfort and Joy, there's a trip to the dentist, which doesn't pay off at all. In a sort of interesting way, it's only sort of a side detail. So, when he's eating the ice cream, he forgets mm-hmm. and his pain. <laughs> so, comfort and joy is tonight. Oh, um, I have to mention this: the Manchurian Candidate, the original, uh, was on the other night, and I always watch it. And uh, of course, it's Frankenheimer, but the script is by George Axelrod, who's a, was a great playwright, who um, perhaps even though he doesn't have the output is perhaps uh, of his era is the Howard Hawks of script writers. And that Howard Hawks um, jumped genres, because, not first because he was told to, and then because he wanted to. And he made perhaps one of the greatest, if not the greatest film in about three different genres. He made bringing a baby. He made red river. Uh, uh, well, Billy Wilder was capable of that as well. Because he made double indemnity, and then he would make a broad comedy, then he'd make a satire, mm-hmm. and then he would, you know, some of his later stuff, not necessarily. I mean, buddy, buddy, are you kidding? Oh, you're going to show buddy, buddy, aren't you? I was you? thinking about it, and, and don't do that. Yeah, I know it's not available, and I know why it's not because it's awful. It's just horrible. Yeah, I, I had it in there, and I'm like, I have a copy, and I can, I guess, but yeah, I can't even justify it because I, if I don't find it entertaining, I'm not going to show it, and. I don't find that movie entertaining. Yeah. Um, of course, Billy Wilder, uh, Billy Wilder is one of those guys. His, certainly his best, uh, uh, his greatest Academy Award achievement is The Apartment. I mean, it won everything. And it is a wonderful, I think, again, uh, going by a real simple baseline, it's really hard to make a good movie that lasts uh, a movie that he, really... he made Ace in the Hole, which is one of my favorite movies well, ever. Well, that's that... eight years before. I know, but it's it holds up so well, and it's so great and so smart. I don't pray. Neilan bags my stockings. Is that hard boiled broad line perhaps number one? <laughs> I don't. I you got a better one? I don't pray. He tells the woman to go to church. I don't pray. Neilan bags my stockings. You got a better one? Hard-boiled broadline? No. <laughs> I think it blows. I'd love to kiss you, but I just washed my hair. It blows it all Well, out. wait. Uh, I guess out. we get a, um, you know, Roddy Piper maybe in They Live. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, I, I came here to kick ass and chew bubblegum, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Yeah. Uh, hard-boiled broadline. We're talking about broad uh, in the... In Roddy the... Piper's not a broad? Is that, is that... God, you're right. He's got C cups. He, he had, does and have And he had the C-cups. long hair then, too. Yeah. C cups and a mullet. Pretty close. So uh, Axelrod, he wrote uh, the screenplay for Seven Year Itch. I think he did the play too. And 
uh, Manchurian Candidate. What? Are you kidding? Yes, he did. How well do you know the Manchurian Candidate? The I have seen it. I've seen it a number of times, and I think it's a fanta- fantastic movie, save for one scene, but that's because that scene's so dated. It's What's it's, the scene? The, the, the karate fight is just really embarrassing. I love the karate fight. It's embarrassing. Come on. I, it's one of my two favorite pre-Bruce Lee karate fights. It's, or fights. It's so cartoonish oh, in the I wrong way. It. It's a wrong mood for the movie. It doesn't need to be in there. I love it. I love it. Henry Silva and Frank Sinatra. How many women had they had they had sex with simultaneously? Well, that's what I want to think about during karate fight. Definitely. <laughs> that and and the first fight uh, Sean Connery has in uh, To Live and Let Die with the sumo wrestler in the uh, in the executive suite where he comes at him you, with a couch. You're confused because Live and Let Die is a Roger Moore. That's you only live in- twice. Okay, I'm Living sorry. Dies the one in uh, yeah, right. Harlem, I think. Harlem, and then uh, they do the you good old Kodo, boys. and it's a that's one not yeah, one of the better awful, ones. Awful, awful, yeah. awful. Jane Seymour, um, not busty enough for a, a Bond heroine. I'm sorry, she just isn't. Um, yeah, it's uh, you only live twice. I'm sorry, it's uh, the last Everyone Sean Connery you, yeah. Bond movie that I enjoy. He only made two more, uh, and I don't enjoy either of them. Which one was it? Like, you don't like Never See Never Again because it's not really great. Right, but... and I don't like Diamonds Are Forever. Okay. Even though I adore both Jill St. John and Lana Wood, Natalie Wood's little, <laughs> not really, sister. <laughs> anyway, um, I enjoy uh, You Only Live Twice and I enjoy the karate fight in it. In the middle of... I mean, there's a karate fight in Goldfinger that's just as ludicrous, but it's Goldfinger, so it's okay. What what karate fight is that? Isn't he? Isn't there like a, a sort of fight uh, between him and Odd Job that starts, and then he throws the hat, and then I don't think that's a karate fight. I know, but it's the attempted one, and it, it sees it sees how absurd it is. Oh and, yeah, and and that's exactly how you play that, and it made around the same time as Manchurian Candidate. So I think you should. Yeah, but it, Frankenheimer but, should have known better than to make this goofy, embarrassing scene. But Bond, uh, I'm and in you only live twice. Um, Bond hits the guy with a couch. It's great. Yes. He attacks the guy with the couch, and it doesn't stop the guy. Right, but that's the right tone for that kind of movie. <laughs> right. What I'm saying is, in the Manchurian Candidate, it's all wrong, because it's the, exactly it should be in a different movie. Mm. All right. Well, there's a, there's a scene, and again, like... Movies, my- movies that have those sorts of scenes would not be shelled by the studio because it's too you know, relevant to history at the time, because of the Kennedy assassination. Remember, right. they buried that. Right, he buried the movie because, it, right, he assassinated a, a guy with a bolt-action rifle if from was, far away. If it had the tone of the karate movie, if it was, uh, you know, two hours of Jim Cotta, they wouldn't have had to worry about that. <laughs> I think that's what they did with the sequel, with Denzel, but I didn't even want... Oh, you know, I did see that in a movie, and I said, oh. Um, I actually heard... People heard me from the next... First uh, hour is pretty went, good, and oh, then it falls apart at the, in the uh, second hour. Why? Why? We know why remake that movie and by the way i think it's sinatra's greatest role and i think he should have been uh nominated for an academy award he might have been i don't know, I know he wasn't he wasn't was I angela lansbury because it's her best role certainly i think so and of course she's the same age as lawrence harvey and he's playing she's playing his mother yeah, but it doesn't matter she's so i know yeah. besides she's kissing him on the lips right. the only other one that comes close to that is um jesse royce landis um in um north by northwest plays 
Cary Grant's mother. She's two years younger than. Her. Oh, I thought you were going to go with like the incest theme because Spanky and the Monkey is pretty good too. No, she plays Cary Grant's mother. She's two years younger than him. So, or Jackie Chan movies often the the actors are like five years older than him and playing his father. That happens all the and, time. And then uh, the backgrounds of Rumble in the Bronx, where you see all the snow-capped peaks, which are in I think Brooklyn. Right. When you see Rumble in the Bronx, Brooklyn, and he's fighting, and you can see uh, the, Brooklyn, comma Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> Rumble in the... Where are those mountains? They're out on Long Island. They are. It's actually retitled from something else. It was originally like Rumble in Hong Kong and then Rumble. Like they, it was just, and then it had some other. Title. Well, you can see mountains in the background of Hong Kong. You can see the distant mountains of. If mountains. you see the undubbed version, it's a different movie. I okay. mean, it's not better, but, you know. I love Rumble in the Bronx, man. As I'm just, the fighting is great. I'm just getting it like the, the story is no more coherent or helpful, you know. Just like uh, the, they, there's a much longer version of his uh, movie First Strike, which was a third sequel sort of to Police Story, and which Super Cop was the second sequel to, which nobody can, they don't seem to be related. But First Strike comes, if you see the original version, 110 minutes maybe 115. And then the American dubbed cut with rap music and all that stuff is like 85 minutes. Okay. And watching the two, you don't lose anything important because there's no fighting they cut out, just half an hour of backstory. And it's like moderately competent versus incompetent is funnier. Shall I tie this up and say that I think, as I recall, the, the plot of uh, Rumble in the Bronx is Jackie Chan defending some people who own a variety store. Which is a lot like Comfort mean, and well, Joy. A convenience store. A convenience right? store, yeah. right. <laughs> so it's a lot like Comfort and Joy. It's about... <laughs> okay, I'm stretching it. Okay. Wait a minute. So there's That a visual scene... joke was for the listeners. So there's a, uh, uh, there's a scene in the very center of um, Manchurian Candidate with Frank Sinatra, who was not nominated and should have been, along with... Was he nominated for Man with a Golden Arm? Probably. Uh, he was nominated for uh, From Here to Eternity because that was, you know, that was the Hollywood bullshit. Always, it's the comeback. It's the comeback and Ava Gardner screwed him up. They always vote for different reasons than the reasons they should be voting for. And, you uh, just ignore the awards. You know, I, I get the screeners, but I don't yeah. vote. In the awards, and of, I vote on something else, but it really doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't reflect anything at the time. I mean, do you find yourself watching Forrest Gump a whole lot? No, never. Exactly. Ever. Even Ever. at the time. I mean, the, the movie, the movie that's never. biggest from then is Pulp Fiction and Shawshank Redemption. Those are the two that have, you know, not necessarily stood the test of time, but the ones that everyone loves and talks about and watches all the time. Nobody watches Forrest Gump. Quiz this, Show is a great movie, but nobody really remembers it. I much. can watch it. No, no, I think it's great. But what I'm saying is that that hasn't become like a big hit over time. And when I watch time. it, I say that little guy, what Rob Morrow. He did Northern Exposure. He's the only bad thing in that movie. He did this, and never, he uh, did he ever work again? Sure. I, uh, it's, it's, okay, you should find him in small parts here and perhaps. there. Perhaps because he's in because one of the movies I wanted to talk about because it related to Comfort and Joy was Mother because he plays the brother in, in in Albert Brooks's movie Mother with Debbie Reynolds. That's right. Yeah. Because there's a scene, and it's very similar to scenes in Comfort and Joy, Mother made long after, where the opening scene of Mother is hilarious, where Albert Brooks has just gotten divorced, and he is has almost no furniture in the house. So he's trying to organize where to put this chair in the middle of this huge living room. But it's the only furniture in the place. 
So it's just him like angling mm-hmm. it or moving mm-hmm. it and thinking, well, it should be perfect here. And it's the absurdity of his, you know, being alone and all this other stuff. And there's a scene very similar to that in Comfort and Joy. And I think there might have been some influence in there because he's going, uh, the main character in Comfort and Joy is going through a breakup and, and of, of a woman who took all the stuff. Really, we haven't, we haven't touched on this. But of course, at the beginning of Comfort and Joy, there is a breakup. And of course, the kind of adventures that the protagonist has well, in a nice way, gets his mind, even though it's, there's some strife involved, gets his mind off his sorrow. But, and then there's a, there's a further tie-up from something we talked about earlier, because in Crossing Delancey, that opens with a scene of Amy Irving following this woman around a store, making sure yeah. she's not stealing. Like she, she is stealing that she takes out the book. And in Comfort and Joy, the very first scene has the main character following his kleptomaniac girlfriend, right. watching her steal everything in sight. Who later steals basically everything out of his apartment? Right, stuff that she's stolen, she takes with her. Right, and it's it it's uh, a backstory, and but in itself, it's it's dealt partly. I don't want to give stuff away. It's partly dealt in the subconscious and dream sequences and stuff. It's dealt with in a beautiful and a very very familiar way for any of us who has gone through that, you know, loss, whether it's through not to equate the two, whether it's through people moving out, breaking up or through death. Uh, they come to us in dreams, don't they? They always come to us in dreams. And, and uh, what are those dreams? If you don't have to analyze them deeply. It's, it's our wish that they were still here. And, and that's, and where, it results in that great scene at the psychiatrist where yeah. with the, with the, do you sail? That's so funny. Another oh man, that's uh, it's it's hard to it's hard to have uh, <laughs> much conviction against um, saying what I'm about to say when the the canon of Bill Forsyth is so brief. But that scene is so Forsyth, yeah, with, with the psychiatrist uh, again. Where he takes personal offense. That's my story, right? Oh, that's and so funny. And of course, the psychiatrist. Um, interaction between Lancaster and his shrink Mm -hmm. over the phone in local hero is great. And of course, a wonderful indictment of psychiatry and therapy, uh, both movies. Yeah. It's these other little in insertions of, of commentary towards either loss or therapy that are just as important as, as the big plot, which frankly isn't that complex. I mean, it's well, about it's, ice cream. It does get a little <laughs> complex near the end, but it's not that important. Right. And it's got a happy ending. Sort it's of. Got, oh, yeah. It has a happy ending. Sort, well, no, in its, in its way. He's I, got a new gig. Well, no, he has the same gig. But now he's got something else on the side. Right. Something else to take his mind off his girlfriend. Right. Who left him. Right. And it, it, if we're going to tie it all up in Mother as well, they're... You know, that's also very much about the same thing throughout. See, I'm trying to get back to uh, Manchurian Candidate, Moscow on the Hudson. So I think uh, the the three the three uh, people that always come to mind when I say these people should have gotten an Oscar for this: Moscow on the Hudson, Hudson, Robin Williams, um, um, Sinatra, Manchurian Candidate, and Richard Pryor in Blue Collar. I think is a brilliant performance. You know, it would have been a great Richard Pryor movie, yeah. except that it falls apart about 20 minutes in. There's a one, he comes back from uh, the war. It's called Some Kind of Hero. Yeah. And 
some Margot Kidder. Some studio exec got in there and yeah. ruined the second half of the movie because the first 40 minutes is really interesting. Comes back from the war, his wife's moved on, and all this other stuff. I know what you're getting out with Castaway. Like, why didn't he figure this out if Richard Pryor figured it out? No, I, I think Richard Pryor movies always have the same problem. Even when he had... Like Superman 3 with Richard well, Lester? Well, <laughs> even when he had Heat, and even assuming that if he would have would have fought tooth and nail saying, no, you do it this way. Um, they always had the cocaine to hold against them. And frankly, he probably was out of the set doing cocaine. So he never got a chance to pull superstar rank on anybody and say, no, my way or the highway, because he did the work. He was tooted half the time, which they probably had to hold against had to hold against them in case he did object to anything. And more than likely, uh, you know, after they said cut rap, you know, he's in he's in the car, he's home, he's under snow, and he just didn't give a shit. He what Orson Welles was to uh, uh, banging women in Rio de Janeiro, uh, <laughs> Richard Pryor was to cocaine, which is. They abandon their projects too soon and let the assholes, whether they are, you know, John Callie or Robert Wise, in the sense of uh, Magnificent Amberson, have at them. What do you think? Well, your thoughts. My <laughs> thoughts are, are that, that Orson Welles' situation is a little different. You can follow that line of reasoning. I, well, uh, maybe, maybe. Okay, because uh, the thing with Orson Welles, all that. If you ever see the documentary, it's all true. That explains a whole bunch of that backstory. With Orson Welles, he's he left be, Magnificent he was, Amberson. He was sent to, by the to, government, basically as a in a goodwill gesture, yeah. to make a film in Brazil or wherever it was. And but he went down and had sex. So he's not allowed to. Have, he's not. No, he made the movie, and he's not allowed to have sex while. No, he has to get home and fight RKO for final cut on Magnificent Ambersons so they don't let Robert Wise butcher the shit out of it, which is what he did. Yes. And they left out the the two Black Crows thing. Uh, There was a a scene. I've read about it. Who knows if the film will ever be found in anywhere. Unlikely. Yeah, right. Uh, Where uh, there's a record playing in the back of the retirement home where Aunt Fanny lives and, and Cotton is talking at the door and there's a song about for want of a, a nail, the horse was lost for one of a nail. It kind of uh, an old kind of minstrel tune that really shows what happened to the entire uh, dynasty of the Ambersons. Many other scenes. They cut out 40 minutes and he didn't fight tooth and nail. And after well, he couldn't, he was in a different country and he was sent by the government. That's what, and then he was blamed for the rest of his career as someone who couldn't finish something when in fact he had no choice in the matter. How is he going to fight it on the phone? That's what happened. It's he, Robert Wise's fault. It's RKO's fault, but well, it's also Well, they hired Wells's Robert fault. Wise. I mean, that's not, you know, it, I, I can't blame someone who's for, hired by the studio to do their job. I mean, was he going to do quit and not eat? And Robert Wise doesn't make anything he made for the next 70 years. Or uh, all right. Day the Earth Stood Still. I'm okay with that. Uh, um, West Side Story. The worst. Just awful. I don't like Sound of Music, but... Um, well, the Sound of Music should be locked up in, in Hitler's vault right. along with him. Um, and do you know that he has a vault? That's tomorrow on Morning Feed. Uh, Star Trek <laughs> 1, which is not good, but okay. <laughs> 
Yeah, just most... and produced and mostly like most likely directed one of the best bad movies of the eighties. What? Wisdom, written, directed, and starring Emilio Estevez when he was about twenty two, twenty three. Gosh, I'm completely at a loss on that one. Really? Uh, it's a Robin Hood type story. Um, it is embarrassingly bad. Seek it out. It is now actually on DVD. And, and similar to the Sony archive, Warner put it out on their Warner archive because there's just no money in releasing it. Demi Moore was dating him at the time, so she's the love interest. He's basically like stealing, going to banks and uh, stealing all the paperwork in the banks so farmers don't have to pay back their loans or whatever like that, as if the banks don't have computer backups. Because mm-hmm. if he burns all the paperwork, well, I guess the loans never happened. And that's the, that's the theory of the movie. And it was a big studio production? Yeah. And they said, uh, we're going to employ this kid because why? Because Robert Wise was overseeing the project. I see. I and see. because he had just co-written, that was then, this is now, for, uh, I can't remember who produced that, but that was... Uh, this is the 80s? This is mid-80s, yeah. Okay. He, did, he wrote, co-wrote that in 85, and then he got Wisdom on the strength of that, and you know, he's in St. Elmo's Fire and whatever else he's in. Or no, Breakfast Club. Is he in St. Elmo's Fire as well? I don't watch those movies, man. <laughs> I'm trying to remember if he is. I don't know. St. Elmo's Fire is not those, a favorite. Those are like uh, uh, the kids who like Pat Benatar like those movies. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, there's I, the one good Pat Benatar song in uh, The Legend of Billie Jean, so it's all right. Uh, okay. You may not know that one. I don't know. Helen Slater. Oh, uh, no, no, no. See, that's, um, that's Reagan stuff. That's Reagan era. I don't. I don't watch that stuff. I. Uh, oh, it's dumb. Of course. Workout togs, not for me. And in comfort and joy, there's almost a mocking of the the '80s studio stuff. There's a, there's like a f- sort of making fun of the caper chase stuff, caper chase scenes. And I couldn't stop thinking mm. of a really lousy movie I watched the other day with Michael Keaton and Radon Chong called The Squeeze, which was made after Comfort and Joy, like about '87. It's a very very expensive studio project. That's a total mess about figuring out lottery numbers and scamming and blah 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 and it's awful but but it's 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 almost like comfort and joy is anticipating that and in making fun of the standard chase sequence in 80s hollywood movies that doesn't need to be there and has the the sort of uh harold faltermeyer style music hey here's somebody uh, who wants us to talk hitchcock woody allen he gets to make a movie every half hour everybody will work for scale and half of them are okay and two-thirds of them suck now. They didn't used to be like that, but he doesn't stop. Well, he gets a lifetime pass, apparently, according to the studios, in the same way that Eastwood, no matter how many movies bomb... I mean, I'm not saying they do. Eastwood doesn't go over budget, and Woody Allen doesn't go over budget, and Eastwood doesn't go over budget because he was taught how to make a movie quickly by Don Siegel, and Woody Allen doesn't go over budget because, A, there's no... He, doesn't, he never buys sets... And all these actors will work for $300 for him. He has to pay nobody's price. They all want to work for Woody Allen. And then he shoots on the streets. So where the hell is the expense? Well, there, and them, he writes every word. Most of them lose money anyway, like a considerable amount. Most of his movies cost now about $30, 35000000 million. That much? Yeah. No. Yeah, really? Mm-hmm. Uh, he got a bump in what they would finance, I think, after Deconstructing Harry. I like that movie. I do, too. I don't know if it holds up, but if there's one thing that holds up, it's the Robin Williams part, the out-of-focus thing. Yeah, yeah. That part I like. And, you know, you can't go wrong when you cast Billy Crystal as a prick because he really knows how to play one. I wonder why. Maybe he's a good actor. Yeah, that's it. Not really. Yeah, that's it. 
<laughs> kind of he Billy Crystal has the same expertise in playing a prick that Walter Brennan had in playing an old toothless man. <laughs> I, I get it, but I'm trying to think. God, ninety year olds must be listening to this and and get laughing at your joke. Okay, but then no, they did... well, they've got te- people who've got televisions. They know who Luke Dubois. Yeah, look at him quit. But. You know, who's going to remember the treasure of the Sierra Madre and all that other stuff? He's not in that. That's Walter Houston. Aha! Uh-huh. But it, but in the sense that of, like, that era is what I'm getting at. Uh, wh- Adam. Yeah. I don't... Uh, what Howard Stern is to vagina, I am to Kierkegaard. I'm not ashamed of mentioning it. I didn't say you had to be ashamed, but I'm just wondering, like... I'm going to keep it. doing it because that's what's in my head. That's okay. And yours, too, apparently. You know who Walter Brennan yes, is. You know who Walter Houston is. Yes. Uh, uh, and and uh, John and, and Angelica. And now, on Boardwalk Empire, her son plays a guy with half a face. So the Houstons are still kicking. Uh, it's not Danny Houston. I haven't watched Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, that's his name. Well, Danny Houston directs, too. I mean, he's been a villain in everything. Yeah, well, he's kind of a sensitive villain here. Okay. I think it's a it's a wonderful performance. I mean, I he's think the villain really, in really Thirty good. Days of Night, which is a schlocky vampire movie from a couple of years ago. I'm going to throw names out at you, and some I'm going to ask a simple question. The first one is like, how come these people don't work? And you will invariably say, "Oh, they do." You're just so uh, <laughs> sealed in amber that you don't see their movies. Allison Eastwood in she was wonderful in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, which. I have as many arguments about it as it's one of my favorite Eastwood movies. I love it. A, sense of place. Really long but holds your interest. Great performances. Courtroom drama and murder. And Allison Eastwood is gorgeous and sweet. Do you want a real answer or you want the the ass-kissing answer? No. The real answer is nepotism only gets you so far. I think she's good. She's only in her father's movies, and then she's in a couple of things like Just a Little Harmless Sex, where she's pretty dreadful. Okay. She's, she, she, I guess she needs the fatherly reassurance. All right. Same category. Um, she was white hot, and maybe it has to do with the uh, supporting actress curse, but Mira Sorvino, where did she go? Well, just like a lot of the direct-to-video you know, crowd now, it's people who were stars in the 90s, but then they couldn't quite find a niche so you have cuba gooding and and val kilmer and tom berenger and all these people appear who are perfectly good actors appearing in direct-to-video movies and bruce willis has just been in a direct-to-video movie like that's really like anybody can be in one yeah but bruce willis is old uh no but the notion that a guy who was like automatically and gonna get a theatrical release no matter how small that's gone Mm. i mean i just saw uh trespass which got a um contractual theatrical release uh, with Nick Cage and Nicole Kidman that Joel Schumacher directed. It's a home invasion movie. It's not as much bad fun as it could be, but it's still silly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he's on the verge, and Nicole Kidman's on the verge of getting stuff to go direct-to-video. So no one is... Good. Amazing. Nicole Kidman de- deserves direct-to-video. She's, well, placid, to put it mildly. I, I would have gone with plastic, but okay. That's it. Um, I guess uh, this uh, little question and answer period is taking the uh, taking a turn towards uh, women it loves. But, you know, uh, Mira Sorvino, uh, did did she go wrong when she started maybe going out with 
um, Tarantino and he said you need to be an action star and she he put her in replacement killers where she should have stayed in light comedy for a while no. like the um uh, uh, Finding Aphrodite. The movie thing. she was in didn't make money. I mean, she's. It, or I give you an example. So she is the star of Mimic, which is a horror film. Yeah. From the late '90s that was butchered by Harvey Weinstein. Luckily, Guillermo del Toro now has power, and he just put out his director's cut on Blu-ray. So if anyone who wants to see like a completely different version of what was once a very mediocre movie with a great opening hour, and mm. F. Murray Abraham, I know one of your favorites. And I love F. I just saw Name of the Rose the other night. He he needs to be was, in more it was medieval on last shit night too. So uh, he needs to be in more medieval shit. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, he should have been in Your Highness, but he wasn't. This is a kind of parallel line. I know there are people who made an impression, a wonderful impression to me, and then they go into a bunch of genre movies, the kind I never see. And which is not the same as fading from sight, but I still get to be angry about it. And I brought this up to you, uh, 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 Mila Jovovich, who I adored in uh, Fifth Element. And I said, yeah, what happened to her? And everybody who isn't my age say, well, she's a billionaire from being in all the uh, Resident, Evil Resident Evil movies, of which there are, I think, 30. And uh, so that's her gig. And I don't see them. And when I do, I say, yeah, but, and yes. They're, they're boring. That's she can reason. leap, but I want her to speak. I do. I, I, I want know. her to I speak. Mean, I've I seen think... her in, in things where she does speak and, mm-hmm. you know, like Stone and 45, and she's not a great actress. She's got presence, though. And the other Couldn't thing is, she have taken some parts from the run, Lola run, uh, uh, girl, what's her name? Franca Potente. Yeah, couldn't she have gotten some Franca Potente roles? I think so. She could have, but then she'd have to take pay cuts. That's the thing. And, uh, you know, if you're married to the director, which has happened to Mia Jovich twice, she was married to Luke Besson, and then she married the director of Resident Evil and all of the uh, other movies that she's, you know, she's in pretty much. Why would you, you know, she clearly has terrible taste in directors, though, because okay. Paul W.S. Anderson is one of the worst mainstream filmmakers working he made the resident evil one and two i think and uh event horizon and soldier and a whole bunch of schlock uh mortal Kombat, which i guess is one of the better video game movies but it's not particularly well made not as good as double dragon that's um, true by the way has jim yukich ever made another film i do not believe he has he's maybe worked tv but that's yeah i know i think i saw him um directing like an emmy show or maybe it was the daytime Emmys. i said my director <laughs> well, Brett Ratner's directing the Oscars this year, and that seems just right for him. So, yeah, well, because wasn't Eddie Murphy in a, a Brett Ratner movie that's coming out in two weeks called Tower Heist? Oh no, really? Eddie Murphy's still making a movie? Eddie Murphy, Ben Stiller, there's a bunch of people in it. It's it, Alan Alda <laughs> playing Bernie Madoff. Oh, so it's not a caper movie? It is a caper movie. It is a caper movie. Uh, Alda, I mean, he's not actually playing Bernie Madoff, but he's playing Bernie Madoff. See. Alan Alda, I respect Alan Alda because in Alan Alda's youth, in his earlier years, you know, he was an ingenue. He was on Broadway. I saw Alan Alda on a Broadway show where he sang uh, with Larry Blyden and Barbara Harris, uh, two inside for everybody. And then, of course, he was in that really popular TV show, which I loathed and detested, called MASH, which, of course, his entire performance, in my opinion, should have been uh, a a plagiarism case uh, by the estate of Groucho Marx be that as it may and of course the entire whatever 40 year run of the of the tv show mash is deservedly hated by everyone who was in the movie mash except well, gary berghoff who uh, got to be 
a prominent citizen of Hawaii. And but it, it allowed TV show. Aldo to make his own movies, like when he made Sweet Liberty and some other stuff. And whether you like it or not, it's always good when someone tries to do something like that. But the maturity of Alan Alda and his willingness and his ability to play edgy and asshole like crimes and misdemeanors a brilliant performance alan alda in my uh, here's here's my metaphor the career of alan alda and tom hanks went right by each other because uh, i contend that alan alda was indeed the tom hanks the lovable pro-feminist every man of the what 70s early 80s and tom hanks took his mantle as tom hanks and alan alda exchanged places in popularity alan alda felt the pressure off from being america's most beloved actor and say now i will simply act and with and do what the role calls for even if it means being despised hanks who i saw foresaw such great things for after philadelphia never fulfilled that he still as we said earlier as i said earlier is this consummately decent man who can't get out of that fucking hole jingoism aside and pride of the city what do you see in philadelphia exactly other than other than really good makeup i see a nuanced performance by tom hanks i do yeah i watched it on tv a couple weeks ago i wouldn't say that okay it's very much an issue movie and that's fine if I hadn't seen all the movies about that very issue four, four or five years before that. And you're, and you're right. And, and Jason Robards is a parody and archetype and all those gay bars along Locust Street. You asshole. There are no gay bar. No, no. On no Chestnut Street. He said he mentioned a street in Philadelphia where there were no gay bars. Anyway. Um, and Denzel kind of wandering through the movie, as he often does. Mary Steenburgen not really having a good time. Yeah, but in the middle. And, and Del Toro doing... Banderas. No, no, I mean Banderas. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> okay, I'm a racist. Banderas, uh, uh, yeah. Banderas is a lot of fun in the new Almodovar film, The Skin I Live In, which I saw a couple days ago. Love him in every Spanish movie. Don't love him in every American what can I say? You'll, then you'll enjoy this. This is like a t- this is a complete Hitchcockian mess of nonsense that Almodovar knows how to make coherent. I wouldn't say that, but filled with weird plot twists all throughout. It's going to open in a couple of weeks in in Philadelphia. I think it's already open in New York. Mm. Um, hey, some opera singers can do it. Can can sing in Italian. Can't sing in in German. I mean, they do the ring the ring, but they don't do it well. And I think that's Banderas. Right. And, and then except them, uh, except, uh, Desperado. Yeah. But he's, it's, it's almost, if that were in Spanish, you wouldn't really notice the difference, to be honest with you. The whole, I don't know. notice much in Desperado other than Selma Hayek. Frankly. Well put together action sequences. Well put together. Some yeah. humor. Yeah. I like it. I like it. I um, like it. a shame. And that, Cheech. Yeah. A, a shame of course, that, that he had to cut the whole ending because of ratings problems. So he just, just deleted it completely. What was the whole ending? Shootout at the very end with him and uh, Joaquim de Alcine, I guess that's his name. His the brother, guy. the short guy. Yeah, the, the one who was, originally was played by Raul Julia before Raul Julia died. Oh, see? Raul Julia had about a foot on that guy. Right. And, uh, you know, what did Raul Julia do instead? Street Fighter. Oh. Uh, which was his last film. We instead. miss him. Yes. We miss him. Uh, but anyway... Um, there was a, a very expansive 10-minute battle sequence, but it got the movie in NC-17. It was too violent, although it's such a ridiculous movie. I don't know why anyone would take it seriously. If you knew that El Mariachi once got an NC-17 originally as well, really? and, and if you read the book about him making that, it, it's so obvious they're just condoms filled with fake blood 
that it's ridiculous that these bullet hole thing, you know, it's just bizarre prejudice against smaller movies. And so he, he, instead of trying to cut the final action sequence in Desperado down to appease the MPA, he just cut the whole thing because it just didn't. But they didn't cut out any nudity from Selma Hayek. All the Selma Hayek nudity. I have is still no idea, but I would assume that it's all in there. Yeah. Oh God! Thank, thank you, MPAA. Ashley Judd doesn't work because she doesn't feel like it. Is that it? I think so. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's so many. I, did you see Ten, Ten Items or Less with Morgan Freeman, where there's this great parody of all the junky movies he did with her, mm. where he goes in and it's like some just random thriller. And it, you know, it see Morgan. Fr- I have my Morgan Freeman problem, which is not unlike my Tom Hanks problem. So I can't. I can never believe anybody so relentlessly and inherently decent. It is so boring to me. And the fact that he street smart, he's great in that. Really? Okay. And the fact that he's having sex with his granddaughter, it's a bad, just points it out even more. Street Smart with Christopher Reeve and... Oh, yeah, I saw that. He it's is not good. a good movie. That's before he became America's most beloved black man, but he though. he is so great in that. And, and He is great in that, and, but and that's before and because he's the only they good, gave him the title of America's most beloved black man. Because he's the only good thing in the movie. That's all you yeah. notice. Right. Uh, and I enjoyed him as Easy Reader as well. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> Many of our greatest... See? Again. And as an extra in Brubaker or whatever. Yeah. yeah. A good movie, Redford, my second favorite Redford movie. Really? Yeah. Okay. Condor. Doesn't hold up well, but... Condor, man. Three Days of the Condor. That's a good movie. I love Three Days of the Condor. You don't like that movie? Not a Pollock fan of that. The only, you know, the Pollock producing is good. I did eventually, I think I talked about this two or three times on his... I did see Margaret in the whatever cut came out, uh-huh. the Lonergan movie, it was still great. It's still a total mess. It's still only out because of some sort of weird lawsuit between the producer and Lonergan and Fox Searchlight. And it's, but it got a contractual release uh, a couple weeks ago, and it'll be on DVD, I guess. Soon. Gonna, I don't oh, know. so you're not going to show it because it's going to be on DVD? No, no, Fox Searchlight owns it, so it, it'll, oh. it'll be out. Okay. Um, and it's the one with uh, Anna Paquin and Matt Damon and Matthew Broderick, Allison Cheney, Mark Ruffalo... Uh, great performance by Jeannie Berlin, Jean Reno, um, Kieran Culkin. See, Jean Reno, I'm a sucker for him, man. I love him. He's good in it. Everything. It, uh, I just saw Ronan again. How many times is that? 34? A lot, a lot, a lot. Because it's got, let's go through Ed Feldman's sucker shit. Paris, it, chase sequences. Chase sequences, some places, uh, places that I haven't seen a million times on the Riviera. They're not in Paris. They're in Nice. Right. Um, uh, along the road, tough. Sure. Uh, it, there's a love thing, but it's so fucking minor. Ma- Mammoth screenplays about MacGuffins. You like that, too? Who cares? Yeah, right. Well, the very... And honor and all sorts of things. The very aspect of the MacGuffin is that you don't have to give a shit about what that is. And and it's got Reno in it. Skellen Skarsgård and a whole bunch of people. Michael Lonsdale. And uh, Natasha McElhone. She's all right. Um, Although she... uh, Excellent in Solaris. Okay. Clooney. Fine. Uh, she's fine. You know, she's there for what she needs to be. Michael Lonsdale is the guy. They go to his house to sew up De Niro. And uh, Piven in his bald state. is a, I think he's in. Isn't he in it too? There's no Piven in there. Am I think, I'm thinking of Heat. I'm sorry. 
Heat with yes. uh, De Niro and, yes, uh, and that's Val Kilmer. Gonna, yes, that's Piven in his bald state. I love that movie too, man. That's Michael Mann. Yes. The Nicholas Ray of the 80s, man, because he does CinemaScope. I mean, he does wide... Nicholas Ray, Wind Across the Everglades, which was just on the other night. I wanted to say this. Nicholas, we're going to show Johnny Guitar pretty soon. Ah. Which, again, not on DVD, and I have no idea why. Lurid. I had it it scheduled for early November. Here's your double feature. What? Johnny Guitar and Rancho Notorious, one after the other, man. I think Rancho Notorious you can get. Oh, okay. But someone suggested some other Nicholas Ray movies. I'm, uh, uh, I'm going to track Wind Acro- uh, Nicholas Ray was the first guy to use widescreen, in my opinion, in a non-blockbuster, super-colossal, biblical, spectacle way. He used it filmically. He used it chimerically. He used it for not for CinemaScope, but just for scope. From the opening scene to the closing scene of a Rebel Without a Cause. See, I think, uh, look, how, how many millions of words have been written about this film. You know, you can't, there are probably three books have been written about the Red Windbreaker, right? Right. Um, but Nicholas Ray uses, I'm sorry, here I go, uh, uses the place, the, cinema, uh, the cinemascope uh, frame and he puts his characters in there to show their isolation. I mean, that's what the film, in the filmic sense, is about to me. I mean, you can do that. Like, I think Barton Fink is 166. He was, but he was the first matter. man to do that. Okay. He isolates his characters in the frame. And that does it all. Uh, and I know... You know what I'm talking about, Barton Fink. The hotel is a great yeah. character in that movie. Yeah. And no, but this is the screen as the character. Right. The screen is the character. And I know people out there are saying Kazan, uh, uh, um, uh, the other, uh, the Kazan movie with, uh, with Dean, East of, Eden, East of Eden, same thing. But no, I don't think so. Especially since I think the landscape became the star. It was a man in a landscape, not unlike even though I'm not a fan, a Wyeth picture, but the darkness and very little of, uh, of uh, Rebel is in the daytime. The darkness, the frame, and the red windbreaker of a guy trying to put himself in the world but can't quite seem to be. That was work of Nicholas Ray. And in Wind Across the Everglades, in a in escape sense, because indeed it is in the Everglades, um, he does the same thing. And Michael Mann does the same thing. I think he he's the best practitioner, whether that fabulous Indian attack scene in Last of the Mohicans or the whole shootout scene, man, in Heat. Now there's a fucking shootout where you know what is going on, not that moving camera bullshit. I mean, it is lucid. Well, they had rented out a lot of that, you know, portion of L.A., and so they could do that. And it's interesting to watch L.A. Takedown, which is a man's uh, version of Heat on a smaller TV budget. Mm. And it's the same characters, the same story, and all that other stuff. And then he just expanded it for Heat. Some some things work a lot better in Heat. Some things work in L.A. Takedown that don't work in Heat. L.A. Takedown is, is marginal, but it's interesting as, a, as an idea to see the development into a big-budget Hollywood movie with big stars, because it's... Not a big budget Hollywood movie. Yeah, but then man went. See, I think we've touched on this before. You know, the Ali movie 
Well, uh, LA, I can't uh, watch LA that because I live through the real Ali and LA Will Smith. Is like eighty eight, eighty nine. Okay, it's right. it's it's precursor to Heat because you know it's because he didn't have the money to make what he wanted at the time. Adam, yeah, as uh, as a climax to our show, and let's talk about Dream Lover, which is your Friday movie, which is free. It is free at medium rare uh, a cinema. Please tell me about it. Dream Lover is a thriller from the early nineties with James Spader, Mad Chin, and Mick. This is the skinny James Spader. Now this is the skinny James Spader. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not one of his like sleazy sex thrillers. This is sort of an examination, sort of a, a B movie black comedy examination of sexism while being, I'd argue, incredibly sexist, but at the same time being fair about it. I'm showing the unrated version, which just doesn't d- doesn't just have a bunch of sex in it, additional to the R-rated cut, but has an extra scene that the producers made him cut at the very end, which does change the film considerably. Why did they make him cut it? I, it's not clear. Time considerations. Mm. It, doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense with the cut. It's not very long. And it's, the beauty is Madkin Amick. Something like that. I, know, I never know how to pronounce her name. Um, from, of course, Twin Peaks. Yes. Which uh, was perhaps the greatest, the, the only network program that pretty much blows the HBO programs into the dust. I mean, I don't, I still don't know how they got away with that. Well, they, they, cause they plan for one season and then right. when it got, well, that happens a lot now. So yeah, I can see where, where the, the genesis of that notion of we're only going to get one season out of this. And so, but I can't imagine, here. I can't imagine ABC forget NBC, CBS, ABC networks seeing five minutes of that program and not saying, could you get this guy on the phone? Maybe it's because the, they did try and get. Maybe they. Maybe he had the James L. Brooks contract with, with, that he has with Fox. Do you know how that works on The Simpsons? They I do, do whatever I want. They deliver The Simpsons, and that's the extent of their interference. They can call and make questions, but they do not have to respond to it. The contract that James L. Brooks, the executive producer of The Simpsons, is he. They have all the freedom they want as long as it meets standards and practices. But I can't and, imagine that Twin Peaks made any kind of money compared to. The Simpsons? Yeah. They thought it would make money, I'm sure. Now, had they had all Korean actors working for cheap, maybe it would have. (laughs) Perhaps. That would have made it a little stranger, though, wouldn't it have? But maybe in its own way it would have been... All Korean and Joan Chen. Right. (laughs) But anyway, Dream Lover is a sort of a comedic thriller, the only film directed by Nicholas Kazan, uh, son of Elia, father of Zoe, creator of... uh, Wrote the screenplay for Reversal of Fortune and a number of other pretty good screenplays and then some bad ones like mobsters but it's this is a strange film in that it did never it never really got the exposure it probably deserved it kind of got released in the wrong period Mm -hmm. where it was seen as an erotic thriller which is not fair because that was the era of erotic thrillers that's like post basic instinct so you had body of evidence and you had traces of red and you had everything being turned into this kind of like quote-unquote steamy erotic thriller and that's not what this is at all it goes a lot further in terms of the psychological stuff, the humor, hmm. and the sex is actually part of the story. And, and it's it's subconscious. It's not like big and showy, like I don't no, know, like not, Reversal and Fortune. I didn't. I don't think it's big and showy. It's 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 a dark, funny movie. Yeah. And sometimes I watch Reversal of Fortune and say, you know, when people in Iowa look at this movie and they look at Ron Silver's performance, they say, yeah, they're all like that. And and I know people like me. Do they do the same thing when they see Ron Silver on the arrival and see him as a like a, a Mexican uh, with a really weird mustache? <laughs> no, I could think of people who have never seen Dershowitz. 
or heard Dershowitz looking at Ron Silver in reversal of fortune says, nobody's that Jewy. And then they see Dershowitz and they say, oh, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> There's another one exactly like him. <laughs> the, the movie Conviction with Hilary Swank, they had, mm. a, they had a very famous lawyer. And I don't know if it was Dershowitz. It was not Ron Kuby, but oh, who's, who's the one? He shows up on, net, on uh, like cable news all the time. One of those very famous lawyers from the 90s who might have worked on O.J. Simpson. Uh, the Exonerated Project. It doesn't matter, but they they had Peter Gallagher play this Jewy Jew, and it was just so strange. <laughs> right? Yeah, he could do it. He can do anything. Yes, he can. But the eyebrows, you know, betrayed him there. It did not. <laughs> Conviction is a laughable movie. Yeah, we miss Ron Silver. No, we don't. <laughs> Actually, we, we were don't. Watching Blue Steel on t- my girlfriend and I were watching Blue Steel the other day on TV. It's bad, but it's fun. You don't need Ron Silver. Ron Silver. Uh, it's okay that Ron Silver passed away because we still have Eric Bogosian. <laughs> but it, it, there aren't any of the, they're not being cast in those roles anymore. I know. Well, because they're not writing the Powers Booth role anymore. <laughs> well, that's because he was the only guy to accept the Academy Award the year of the strike. Remember, he was like frozen out of Hollywood for like a decade. Powers Booth. Who did he accept it on behalf of? Himself. What did he win for? I think it was an Emmy. Oh, an Emmy. Okay, it was like an Oscar. And I don't. Think no, it was won. an Emmy. Okay, and then he didn't work. For years. I think he won it for Jonestown. Okay. And he was good in it. He deserved it. Right. Is that kids outside playing? Uh, yeah, they're all, they're wanting Powers Booth to make a comeback. I think that's what's going on. <laughs> Adam, it's enough. Give uh, the plugs again. Okay. Tonight, uh, Comfort and Joy, 7 o'clock. And next month, I want to show something like... Um, which is uh, swimming to Cambodia, but I, I want to... Spalding Gray. Wouldn't the logical, uh, more recent sequel would be uh, swimming almost to Staten Island? <sighs> too soon? What <laughs> Not do you too think? soon. Just, what do you think? You know, people who respect Spalding Gray are like... Uh, I love Spalding Gray. Would he Gray. have liked that show? Yes, he would have. Yeah. He was in... Um, he was in three porno movies, wasn't he in Debbie? No, uh, what was he in? Uh, he was in Little Orphan Dusty with Rhonda Joe Petty. I mean, in I the crowd a, gang rape scene. There's a lot of actors Gray. who, like, you know, Stallone started in porn, too. But you, so No, that wasn't real porn. Yes, it was. Kitties, no. It was I, softcore. I've he seen the whole movie. It is porn. He didn't do any of it. He's in one scene. His stuff's softcore. But he is yeah. nude, and, and you can tell. Okay. There's other hardcore acts in the film. It's not one of the better porn films, but, you know, it's interesting from a time perspective. And the fact that when they released it in, on DVD in Italy... They didn't want to call it what it was, so rather than, you know, they try to cash in on Stallone, they called mm-hmm. it Bacchi. Not the Italian Stallion where it was really Well, it was, it was called, here. yes, it was, it was called something, that. something at Kitty's, dinner yeah, time at Kitty's. Yeah, party at Kitty and Studs, and then they titties, retitled right. it the Italian Stallion yeah. years later. But the, the DVD release in Italy was called Bacchi, B-O-C-K-Y. Adam, are there porn actors or actresses who could, because of their talent, make it in mainstream only? A few. I mean, Jamie Gillis could have if he wanted to. Yeah. I mean, he died but recently, but, yeah. but he could have. He was a good actor. Um, he's funny, too. Yeah, exactly. And, they of were, course, they... Harry Reams crossed over, but then he wasn't a good actor. Now he does real estate, yeah. And, and, of course, Tracy Lords got into mainstream not because she was in porn, but because of what she was to porn, the big right. scandal of porn. Because Ginger Lynn Allen's a better actress than she is. And, and looks more like Meg Ryan. Yes, but she only, I think she did a couple of like, you know, exploitation movies in the mm-hmm. late 80s, like ripoffs of uh, Police Academy called Vice Academy. See, now Brie Olsen, who's one of the biggest stars in porn now, I think could really. Uh, could she act? 
I believe she can. She's not stiff or anything like that? I mean, that's the big problem. No. And I'm not talking about the males being stiff. No. I urge you to go on uh, YouTube and look at Brie Olson doing cooking shows. Okay. Because she's a naturally engaging performer. And aside from the fact that she is, in my opinion, physically perfect and a wonderful, wonderful uh, sexual being, I, I think that's great. And, of course, when, uh, when you see her saying, oh, I love sex, I love to do it with all different kinds of guys, that's the acting part. It's bullshit. It's a job. So the fact that she's convincing on that at least says something. And uh, certainly, I mean, come on, Kirsten Dunst? I mean, really? She's good at melancholia. Uh... Is Sofia Coppola ever going to make another movie? Uh, that's that doesn't suck. I like some of somewhere. Not it's not for everyone. I liked the opening maybe twenty five minutes. It's a little repetitive. See, I think Lost in Translation is a great film. It is. A hey, did film. you see somewhere? No. Stephen Dorff and one of the which is it? What's the fan, one of the Fannings is in it, and it has a Fanning. One of them. I don't a remember which sundry one. Sundry Fanning. Yes. The the, the opening <laughs> scene is very funny where Stephen Dorff plays an uh, overpaid actor in Hollywood and who's so bored. Oh, yes. I read a review of this, which is going to be the extent of my relationship. Twin strippers using poles in his hotel room, and they're dancing and they're doing their thing. So it's a Charlie Sheen story. He could not look more bored. It's a great scene. It's so funny, the way that it's handled. And and the rest of it is a little repetitive. Mm. It's not anything you should go seek out. But if it's on cable, I don't have a problem. What shall I seek out? You told me Drive last time, and I've been trying to see it. I want to, and I will. Margaret, if it's still out, I don't know. Who's in that? That's the one I described earlier with Anne Paquin. Uh, Right, Anne Paquin. I love her. uh, Shared a red carpet with her. And and all the other actors who are in that, Broderick, Damon, and Tetra, and all Mm -hmm, that. A lot of people. Jenny, Ruffalo. Anything with Harry Dean Stanton coming up? Coming up, I don't know. He does it, still acts, but he's not going to be in. He's not getting major parts or anything like that. Does Robert De Niro have children? I I don't think so. I don't get it. Then why is he making Fokker movies if he doesn't have to provide for their education? I don't know. Does it all go into? You know what his next movie is? Does he all? Does it all go into the Tribeca Film Festival? Because if it does, fine. Then it's okay. Yes, exactly. He's in the new Gary Marshall movie. Instead of uh, whatever Valentine's Day, it's like New Year's Day or whatever. Laverne and Travis, is it called? It's oh, yeah, see? Get it? Gary Marshall, Robert De Niro, Laverne and Travis. See? Did you, did you, did you hear that? Sorry. <laughs> but, he, you know, it's cash and checks. And if it's going to the Tribeca Film Festival, I really have no problem with that. Okay. I mean, if, if Soderbergh makes Contagion... So he can do some more interesting stuff, like he did the, the John Gray. Sales equation. Yeah, the Spalding Gray documentary that Soderbergh put together, and and everything is going fine. I watched that a few days ago. It's great. It's like a tribute and almost narrated by Gray, long after his death. Obviously, it's if very you, well put together. If you get a check and then you do good things with it, then it's okay. Sales did it. Redford did it. Soderbergh's uh, been doing it a long time. Doing Clooney that. does it. Mm-hmm. Even Scorsese. Matt Damon does it as well from time to time. You know, I saw a movie with Matt Damon yesterday where he plays a guy who works for Archer Daniels Midland. It's called The Informant. Yeah, that's Soderbergh as well. It was cute. He's funny. It wasn't great. It was cute. I don't enjoy the tone of the movie. I think in my review I wrote that the exclamation point in the title tells you all you need to know about the movie in terms of how condescending it is because it could deal with... With the actual stuff, but the only thing really going on in the movie is the monologue inside Matt Damon's head, and that's just very funny. And the rest of it is a bunch. He hired a bunch of stand-up comedians yes. to stand around not be funny. Yes, there are like thirty yep. stand-up comedians in that movie. But 
of course you see it and you say oh it's like the russell crowe pacino movie about cigarettes you know it's about a whistleblower right but then it has a twist but it has a subtle not showy twist that you say well this movie was kind of bumping along and you knew nothing incredible was going to happen but then something does happen and even the plot twist in the last that that comes about slowly in the last third to a quarter of the movie has the same kind of low key tone as the rest of the movie and you say so this is not a curveball, something from out of the ordinary. Oh, and suddenly they well, find the will. This, this is perfectly this really happened. The I mean, that's yeah. a real thing. So. Yeah, and I didn't know what had happened. So the way the S- twist... Similar to, it works very similar to the Jim Carrey one from uh, I don't last watch year. Movies like that. Uh, Jim Carrey and uh, Ewan McGregor. Hello, I love you, Philip Morris. Hmm. The one He played a, con, a gay con man uh, in prison. It's actually very good. You know everything we said about Robin Williams before? What? What's that? It goes double for Jim Carrey. But you know what? I know that it didn't get a lot of press, but it's very entertaining, actually. Unless you're incredibly homophobic, which means you'll be uncomfortable. No, just the normal amount. Okay, just a le- <laughs> certain level. And I wanted to talk about... What- no, I'm not! <laughs> One of the... Gay people invented show business. How could I be against them? Right. Uh, the <laughs> films I'm planning on showing next month, Johnny Guitar. Mont- Lurid. Montenegro by Dusan uh, Makiewicz with Susan Anspaugh, one of your favorites. Uh, Met her. Nice girl. La- the 1995 version of Les Miserables. Very short. Really? Okay. Shorter than most, I thought. Most actresses are, are short, but mm. it, it helps with the, the short actress they're standing next to. Yeah, well, you know, I should have known that from Played Against Sam. Right. Les Miserables from 1995, the Claude Loche version with Belmondo. Excellent movie mm-hmm. that's not on DVD. Or the 1982 version of She, which is atrocious, but Wait fantastic. Wait a minute. A German woman, right? No? I'm trying to remember. It's directed by the guy who made that horrible Drew Barrymore movie from the 90s called Doppelganger. I think it starts the same woman from Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS. Diane Thorne? She might be in that. Yeah, who's really German. She was the Brigitte Nielsen of her day. Better actress, well, though. Could that be possible? <laughs> no. Uh, you know, having seen Cobra, I can't make that argument that Brigitte Nielsen can be topped in any way. No. I mean, anybody who... Brigitte Nielsen is almost outacted by the Pepsi machine on on, uh, Stallone's front yard in in Cobra. No. She makes us believe that she likes that guy. (laughs) Okay. What? No, that guy. The guy with the big clock. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, Father Time. Yeah, that's it. Uh, Flavor Flav. Uh, right. Uh, she makes gonna... us believe she actually enjoys kissing that. And then uh, we're going to show a great <laughs> unsung movie with Pickle Man, Peter Riegert. But Jason Priestley is the lead. Went direct to video, but it's so great. It's called Cold-Blooded. It's a movie where he plays sort of... Peter Riegert? No, Priestley. Pre- oh, okay. Priestley's only in two good movies, and this is one of them. The other one is Love and Death in Long Island. Yes, adore it. Yes, great adore film. It. And he, the, that guy made um, Owning Mahoney and then disappeared with, with um, Hoffman. Love and Death in, with John... Hurt. Hurt, right. Right. And uh, Oni Mahoney with Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's great in that, too. My favorite line in Love and Death in Long Island? There's a lot of them. When he's in the luncheonette for the first time? With uh, Maury Chaikin. Right, Maury Chaikin. Uh, one of the greatest character actors exactly. that ever lived. Yeah, you should see him in a great Dead, a great too part. bad. I know. Unstrung Heroes, he's terrific in a mediocre movie, but he's very good in that. Maury Chaikin said, uh, uh, John Hurt says, what, what can I have? He said, best chili you ever, you ever tasted. And he says... Well, that goes without saying. (laughs) 
that's the most British thing anyone could ever say. Exactly. <laughs> Cold-Blooded is the name of the film, but basically Priestley is sort of a moronic guy who works as bookie, and then he is promoted by the mob to Hitman. Yeah. Because they need a hitman, so they just promote him. And I seem to remember Robert Loja being the mob boss, but I may be wrong on that. But Peter Rieger's the guy who trains him. And it's very funny, very dark. Garofalo plays a prostitute, but it's sort of like an in-house prostitute. I am deeply and have always been deeply in love with Janine Garofalo. Then you'll enjoy this. She's very funny in this. I liked her before she was tattooed and when she was chubby a lot more and before she became, I don't know, Michael Moore with a vagina. But I still, and I met her and I hung out with her and one of the greatest regrets of the life I had where I was kind of famous for a short period of time is I think she might have accepted a dinner invitation from me, but it was like meeting the fucking class valedictorian and I couldn't pull the trigger and it is one of I don't have many regrets but that's one of them well she's never really been interested in sex she talks about that on stage all the time I could make it so she's been in a relationship for so long I don't care this was a long time ago this is 93 she was still a little chubby i'm sure she yeah, she was... just got married at that point she's still married no, actually. she was single she was single. no no, no. She, it was it was a, a jokey wedding with a boyfriend and then okay. she just never got divorced i don't care i read the signs okay. it was my fault entirely okay it was my fault and and who's aged better in a sense i have i have not tatted my ass up i have aged better okay i have all right Good thing you're on the radio. I saw her later at Caroline's Mm -hmm. and the opening act. No one had ever seen him before. This is also early 90s. Killed. And it was one of those times I said, this guy is short and fat and with a beard and he's going to be a star. And I will bet a thousand dollars on it right now. Kevin James? Galifianakis. Okay. Nobody knew who the hell this guy was. He sat down at a piano and said, I'm half Greek and half Irish which means I used to be drunk at my parents' diner. And he played songs. He never plays the piano anymore. He's a nice piano player, and he did parodies of songs, but it's like being an impressionist. No, if you watch him, he hasn't done a comedy, you know. He doesn't do sets anymore. Yeah, he rarely does. He's acting too much. Although you catch him on some podcasts here and there, and he's very funny. Between Two Ferns. Yeah, that's really funny. Is the best thing on that site, What Funny or Die, die. without question. Although the videos they put together for Reggie Watts and Garfunkel Notes are worth watching as well, if you get a chance to do that. Reggie Watts is a sort of improvisational comedian who has this amazing machine. He's a black guy with this enormous hair. And he's this machine that he can just make songs on the spot because it can repeat noises. It's just astonishing. If you get a chance to see him live... He's like that guy from Police Academy, only he uses... Only really, really, really talented. Okay. (laughs) And very nice guy, very humble, too. All right. Um, And Garfunkel notes is a... But but Galifianakis, I don't see him play the piano anymore, and that was his gig. I mean, that was his act. And I think it's well, like impressionist. You get famous for something and you say, I don't want to do that. It wasn't, it's like well, me. I don't talk about furniture anymore. He was playing the piano, but it was almost like a distraction so he could space out the absurd one-liners. It worked better mm. that way. I talked to a, a, the director of one of his specials once, Michael Blyden, who used to be on The Daily Show a long time ago. It's a DVD called Live at the Purple Onion, and it's filled Been with there. long pauses, and it's very strange, but I described it as, and the director agreed with me, that it's very much like watching Jarmusch, and that you wade through this sort of morass of what seems really boring, and then this brilliant one-liner will come out of it, 
and only works because of the way he has set it up and that you have to be patient and then something droll and wonderful he'll say mm-hmm. and it's and if you get a chance you can find if you can still find it i guess you got to go to the internet to find it but his uh, late night talk show he had on vh1 that lasted like Galifianakis? Uh, yeah, about six weeks. Was Very it like funny. Behind, be, between two ferns in any way? It's n- not not quite as absurd, but he, it was the kind of thing where they knew they were getting canceled, so they spent the last two weeks of the show talking about being canceled. Mm. See, I think absurd. Between Two Ferns is just absurd enough. Yes, it is. It's like middle brow absurd. But I, I wish he could pull it off like if he wasn't famous, like the way that Ali G pulled it off on his HBO show, not on the bridge version where everyone knew it was a joke, but the way Ali G would do it, yeah, where it was hidden and then the you know moronic stuff. I think Sasha Baron Cohen is talented. I think he can play roles, but again, he's good in the um, what is Sweeney Todd? Okay, in the first movie that he did. The LG movie is not very good. No, no, no. Borat. Borat. LG is way before. That movie is 2002. I am not a fan of the high concept making fun of the squares thing. I think it's too easy. I think it's shooting fish in a barrel. Whether he does it to the squares who don't know that he, they're being made fun of. Whether the interviewers do it on The Daily Show. I That's my least favorite part of The Daily Show. Asking them absurd questions and then shooting them looking confused or unnerved. It's not funny to me. It's too easy. It's lazy comedy. I don't like it. And when it's compounded by a a high concept character, I like it even less. The parts of Borat that I really liked was when he was interacting with his fat little producer. That narrative, not when he did the high concept shit where he's making fun of the squares, but the actual narrative of the getting out there. I didn't like any of the other parts. I felt this should be the movie. The movie should not be about him and frat boys or him with white Southerners. It should be about him and the fat producer. And when they 69'd naked in a hotel room, I said, there's a man. Who gives it up for his art? God damn it! Well, I would not, not quite because of the way that he blacks his own penis out—it's almost to the floor, as sort of a joke. About I don't him. care. He still had his crotch buried in that guy's crotch, yes. and I said, "That's but dying that's, for your art, my friend." The homoeroticism got is spread. prevalent in the new frat pack style Will Ferrell stuff. You know, it's inherent. They've been doing male and male kissing on Saturday Night Live as sort of like ew joke stuff for a long time, yeah, and it's it, a, it just developed from there. Cohen is just pushing it further and deliberately making us uncomfortable, which is fine. I don't think he managed it with Bruno, though, because I don't know if you saw the Bruno film. No, everybody told me not to, and so I didn't. It has moments here and there that are funny, but he just, he looks uncomfortable. He's the one who looks uncomfortable. Yeah, he looks like he cannot commit. He can commit to a cartoon version of effeminacy, but he cannot commit to just the actual literal gay performance sex stuff. Within the context of this Hollywood, Adam, I, o- film. I always know when I make a statement that probably some people, maybe even me, uh, points out that I'm just not with it. But the high concept, the staying, in, the especially the making fun of the straights, making fun of the squares, it's very prevalent. I just never, wh- whenever anybody says I don't laugh at this, 
somehow it seems tragic because it seems a lot of other people are laughing at it. And so, oh, why aren't you? But I just, it's well, not is, comedy to what me. What is Napoleon Dynamite other than pretending you're not making fun of him? I like that movie. Yeah, I, I can't re- stand any second of it. See, I, I really like that movie. It's, I think it, it's sweet and it, sincere. It, oh, it's absolutely not sincere for a second. Okay, I think it is. Not at all. It could not be less sincere. And they try to make him as unlikable as possible so you can make fun of him. See, I like so you can So you can... Well, no, <laughs> but they try to make him so unpleasant. I mean, that's very deliberate on their part. Making him not just nerdy, which is just what they call it, cool people with bad PR, mm. but off-putting. Like, he's really off-putting. And he's dumb, too. It's so strained and so conniving in what he's trying to do. And I don't know if it's better that, you know, everyone saw the movie or if it had gone into obscurity I'm not sure but uh, yeah it just that movie drives me nuts and it did it did initially and it still does and I haven't seen it since 2004 and I I understand and I find it endearing and charming and again it has that sense of place that takes right from Todd Solon's and then condescends to the Midwest like Alexander Payne it's the far west it's not the Midwest it's it's like Idaho It's the same notion. No, no, it's High Plains. The Midwest is cornfields. It doesn't come from knowledge of the place. They're Mormons from Utah. I know, but it's in High Idaho. Right, but what I'm getting at is <laughs> it's just like some... He just mixed the Solons. I mean, the Solons is obvious in every frame of that movie. And Wes Anderson ladled on more condescension and made them more unpleasant and then stripped away the jokes except for the really obvious stuff with wigs and stuff. And, like, the racism is just, like, is there, but it's you know, not pushed in our faces all the time or they pretend it's ironic racism when it really isn't. See, now I'm confused because I thought that was one of the films that would speak to your generation. <laughs> uh, like Boondock Saints does? You know, something I don't get uh, I... either. All right. Hey, okay. We're going to end. Okay. Uh, this has been Morning Feed. Well, listen to this. Hello, folks. 